every week we all get on and uh, usually there's, you know, just like different topics that we try to cover. So we've talked about all different types of cryptocurrencies. We've talked about, you know, what makes a cryptocurrency a good investment. Um, we talked about, you know, how to understand the price chart. Um, and so the, all these videos are on YouTube. And so, you, you know, definitely a, a good listen. A lot, lot of, like, we, we definitely go deep. Um, like, a lot of this stuff really isn't like one-on-one stuff. Lately, we've, been, we've been going, you know, really really in depth on some pretty advanced topics but um today just you know because we have some you know some people who are joining us for the first time and so uh i think today we're just going to do some qa uh, some people had replied to my instagram story and asked some pretty good questions and um so today like you know we're, we're probably just gonna you know cover those hey so uh fun story before we get going uh so Earlier this week, I transferred some money or I transferred Bitcoin, excuse me, from Cash App to my wallet mm -hmm. just as a, it was just time, you know, I was like, okay, so whatever, it's time to do it. And it's nerve wracking. I'm not going to lie. Like I had to do a, I did a transaction. I did a really small transaction first, made sure it went through. And then I did it the second time and it all went through. And it's like, just I feel like that's something to practice. Like you don't want to just have to do it one day. Like I was, yeah. it was, it's nerve wracking doing it. I don't know. It's kind of funny. Just like the practice of it. Yeah, that's, it definitely is. Like the first couple of times you're doing it, you're like, okay, am I doing it right? And then because like, um, like there are a couple different types of Bitcoin wallet uh, formats, like some, like the original Bitcoin uh, wallet format started with a one and then there was like an upgrade to the protocol and then like a new type of Bitcoin address that starts with a BC. And then there's like another, like just uh, about three years ago, there was another new software update and it introduced a wallet format that is starts with a three. And sometimes you like, even though like they're all like everything, like that's like a theme in Bitcoin development is that everything is backward compatible. So like the first coins that Satoshi Nakamoto mined, those are still fully compatible with the network. Um, but they have different, like the wallet, the, the wallet, like, you know, that long digit, they just look different. And so when I was like first figuring out, I was like, you know, seeing these different types of wallets and I was like kind of nervous. I'm like, okay, if I send from a, a one wallet, is it going to make it to the three wallet? And, and like, you know, so that, that, that is, that can be kind of nerve wracking <laughs> for sure. But yeah, I'm glad it got all worked. How about how long did it take your your transaction to go through? Uh, uh, twelve. Uh, I did it at night, and then I woke up the next day, and probably between twelve to eighteen hours before the confirmation. Like it went through, but for it to actually be confirmed on the the blockchain, mm -hmm. um, it was probably over twelve hours. I'd say. Oh really? It took a while. Yeah, I was free. I was like, wait, did I mess up? So, yeah, yeah but it, it all went through. Yeah, usually when you're when you're withdrawing from from an exchange, I mean, I, I know usually Cash App's pretty good because Cash App does mining, um, and okay. so by by Cash App doing the mining, um, they actually like when people are withdrawing Bitcoin, they, uh, they actually prioritize Cash App customers because like you as the miner, like if you're the one that rolls that to the 256 sided die and you guess the right number, you get to choose which transactions from, it's called the mempool. It's the group of, it's like the unconfirmed transactions. Um, you get to choose which, which group of that goes in there. And so um, 
like because if you notice when when you trend when you withdrew from cash app you don't pay a fee and that's because um cash app eats the fee like they like normally like miners they um they run software that helps them figure out you know which transactions have the largest transaction fee um that like the you know whoever sent it and so you can like bid more and and get your transaction to go through faster but cash app they they actually prioritize their own customer withdrawals um and so that's like you know so usually it is pretty quick um but then like you know sometimes especially because um like it it might have so you said when did you say you did this uh it was i think it was two days ago okay yeah so huh, that's actually surprising it might have taken so long because um the the network actually just uh the every remember every two weeks there's the automatic difficulty adjustment where the mining yeah. rate changes um yep. It just had its largest increase in history, meaning in the last two weeks, the largest number of new Bitcoin miners came online. And when new miners come online, uh, the blocks start being discovered faster than that 10 minute target average. And so, uh, you know, uh, so I, I'm not sure why, why yours might take us off. Maybe there's just a lot of people withdrawing from Cash App and, you know, kind of got lost in the mempool. Right. Called, but, but yeah. Hey, real quick. Yeah. Um, you said how many new Bitcoin miners in the past two weeks? Um, I don't know how many. Uh, we, we can actually look at that. When, when I start, start sharing my screen, we can pull up some of the mining stats. But it was, cool. the, um, it, it was about a 15% increase, um, you know, which, which was like the largest over any two-week period ever. Um, and so, like, it's pretty, like, um, it, it's just showing that, like, the, the mining industry is really growing. Um, like even as like, you know, the inflation rate, so the, the amount that the miners earn actually cut in half last month. Um, and so, uh, usually that's pretty bullish for, well, it, it can be bullish and bearish for the price, like bullish, meaning like there are more people mining, which means there are more people trying to earn Bitcoin. Um, but it's also can be bearish because as it gets harder to do, it becomes more expensive to mine and the miners will have to sell more Bitcoin than they would have been. And so it kind of like on one hand, it's kind of bullish in aggregate, but on the other hand, as it becomes more expensive to mine, um, there might be more Bitcoin for sale from the miners because they need to, you know, cover their costs of, of running their mining equipment. So it's kind of a dual edged sword, but overall what it means is that the network is more secure. Um, you know, so kind of stemming off of that real quick um as new like as new bitcoin gets mined does that increase this total like supply of bitcoin or is it just like being discovered from somewhere like so, i'm not completely familiar with how exactly um you know bitcoin enters the market like where it comes from yeah after that's a, that's a great question that's something we, we talk about all the time here and we, let me let me start sharing my screen and then I'll I'll show a chart that shows it and then we'll we'll explain like you know what it means to mine a Bitcoin. That's a, that's a great kind of first question that we you know we can cover and then uh, then we've got a whole list of qu of questions that uh, that we'll also cover. But yeah, like since you're on like that's right now because you know sometimes these last up two hours. I don't know if you got to go sometime, but we'll we'll, we'll cover that question I got time. <laughs> and then uh, you know we'll we'll kind of use that to kick ourselves off. Um, 
So can you all see my screen right now? Mm. Yep. Not, not yet. Yeah. It's still loading on my end. Okay. Um, so hopefully that'll, that'll, you know, start displaying. Um, so Bitcoin supply chart. So, um, so there, there's 21 million total Bitcoin, um, but not all of the Bitcoin have been mined yet. So far, about 18 million Bitcoin have been mined. Um, and it, they, they get mined at a rate that is predetermined. Um, and so about a, like, so when Bitcoin started, so here, let me blow this picture up. Um, how do I, okay, so when, when Bitcoin started um, at this time, the every time, uh, every, about every 10 minutes, uh, 50 Bitcoin were, were, were minted into existence. Um, and so that was about 7,200 Bitcoin per day. Um, and then in November of 2012, so it's every 210,000 blocks. So every, you know, 210 uh, times that like a, like a, a, a Bitcoin is mined, like every, the inflation rate cuts in half. And so it started at 50 blocks per minute or 50, 50 Bitcoin per block which comes out to 7,200 Bitcoin per, per day. That's the, the inflation rate. So like when, when Bitcoin started, it actually had a really high inflation rate, you know, because it's going from zero to, uh, what is it? Seven, about 720. Okay, so 50 times 210,000. So like in the first about four years of Bitcoin existing, the, the supply went from zero to 10,000 or to 10,500,000 Bitcoin. Um, and that's really high. Like that's a, that's a really high inflation rate. Like that is uh, what, so 7,200 times, uh, 7,200 divided by uh, 365. Is that, oh no. So every day there's, so at, at the time that, uh, like at the end of that year, Bitcoin was inflating at a rate of 7,200 over 10, uh, 500. Here, I'm typing this in the calculator so I get this right. It was inflating at a, um, at a yearly inflation rate of 25%. Um, so that like in the first year was a really high inflation rate. And then it, uh, every 210,000 blocks, which is about every four years, the, the inflation rate abruptly cuts in half. So it went from 7,200 Bitcoin per day during the first 210,000 blocks down to 3,600 Bitcoin were mined per day. And then in 2016, leading up to the crazy bull run that really kind of burst Bitcoin onto the global scene, um, the inflation rate cut to um, 1,800 Bitcoin per day. And then just about a month ago, actually, the inflation rate cut again to um, 900 Bitcoin per day. So 6.25 Bitcoin per block. Um, and so every four years, the inflation rate just abruptly cuts in half. Um, and then as it does that, the total number of Bitcoin approaches 21 million. Um, and so as you can see, if you can see here, um, it actually happens over a, so there are 32 of these period of these periods. 
And so 32 times, times four, because so they happen about every four years. So all of the Bitcoin will be mined um, in about the year like 2110, perhaps. Um, because every four years, it's just cutting a half as it approaches zero. Um, so um, it like it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of just like a, like not really, it's not really a debate, but like there, there's 21 million total Bitcoin, but only about 18 million are, are like in the circulating supply right now. Um, so, um, you know, and, and they get minted through the mining process and the mining process is what uh, gives the network security and it makes it so that it's impossible to counterfeit Bitcoin. Um, and so that's, that's kind of how, you know, that's, that's, that's how the, the supply rolls out. And, um, and, that, and that's like why it's, why there's this like very energy intensive mining process is to just like secure the network. Um, so yeah, does that, does that answer your question about the Bitcoin supply? It does, but it raises another one. If you're saying that there's a fixed rate of Bitcoin mining, but the the fifteen percent increase in the new Bitcoin miners in two weeks is gonna discover more Bitcoin faster, as you say, because those seem to be conflicting statements. And I'm curious which one's true, because that will definitely affect my investment choices. Because if this rate is speeding up, and the you know this supply is not going to increase ever from twenty one million, then that's just a clear fact on demand that's gonna raise like price you know yeah so um there's a site here that you should check out i'll put it in the chat um where's the chat so this is called the block explorer blockchain.com has a really good block explorer it's where all the bitcoin information can be found um and so what this is showing is like this is the network this is network difficulty so a measure of how difficult it is to mine a new block so that means how many people are, are doing the mining process. And so every two weeks, the network measures how fast new blocks were found. The way a new block is found, like, I kid you not, we, we talk about this almost every time, but, it, but like I always reiterate, cause it's like a really good thing to just like get your head around. Um, these miners are special computers that only do one thing and that is roll a die or it's guessing a number. So it's like rolling a die with two to the 256 sides. It's like an astronomical number. And what it does is it takes that number and um, it takes, so here, let, let me, let me show you what, what this is all about. Um, so it, um, okay. <laughs> so you see these, uh, okay, here. So you see this like latest transactions, there's a thing called the hash. What it does, what the miners are doing is they're taking this number, they're trying to, uh, and then they're guessing another number and they're putting this number with the new number that they're guessing. Um, so here, let me show you a better. So they're taking, you see how this number starts with however many zeros? Um, they're taking, they're taking the number from like, so the hash from block six, three, five, two, two, seven, they're taking that, whatever that hash was and putting it through this equation with a new number that they're guessing. 
And if the, uh, if this number, not plus, because they're not adding the numbers, they're putting it through, it's called SHA-256. It's a cryptographic algorithm. They're putting them through this hash. And if the resulting number starts with the same number of zeros, then that person is allowed to put forth the next batch of transactions to the network. And so when new people start mining, um, then there are more people guessing. And so this number will be found faster. And so what the, what the network does automatically is every two weeks, it measures how fast, um, how fast it took between, um, between each block. So how fast it took the, the whole network of miners to guess this number, to literally guess a magic number. Um, and then the network adjusts how many zeros it needs to, that, that need to be in this hash. Um, and so if you were to like look at block one, um, when only Satoshi was mining, you see that like only, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, did I count that right? Only eight zeros were at the start of this number. Um, you know, cause you know, the difficulty was one because Satoshi was the only one mining at that time. Um, but then now as we have, you know, we're almost at an all time high of network difficulty, meaning an all time high of people mining. Um, this number, the difficulty is now 15 billion. So it's a mathematical value of how hard it is to find a valid hash for this block. And so like this, it, it is 15 billion times harder to guess the number that when put through this equation produces another number with this many zeros at the front of it. And so um, like that's, that's like how, um, and, and then the, the network just looks at itself and then it tries to hit a target rate of, of, a, of this number being guessed every 10 minutes and it adjusts itself accordingly. Um, and so increasing, um, increasing difficulty means that more people are making the investment in mining equipment, um, which is pretty expensive. Um, and that's, so it, it means that Bitcoin is becoming more in demand. It's like another measure of price. You can either acquire Bitcoin by buying it off the market, or you can acquire Bitcoin by, um, by mining. Um, and so any increase in, in this, it's, um, it's a, you know, bullish because it means, you know, there's increased demand for the Bitcoin, but as it gets more difficult, that means it's more, it, it costs more electricity to mine. And so, um, that could potentially introduce new cell pressure, but what it can also do is like, because uh, as the, like a, a month ago, the inflation rate cut from 1800 Bitcoin per day to 900. Now the miners suddenly have less Bitcoin to sell and they have to charge a higher price. And so what that, the way that looks on the chart um, is every four years that inflation rate cuts in half. So in November, 2012 was the first one. Uh, let's get this line. Where's, can you all see that? Oh yeah, here it is. 
So November 2012, Jan, uh, June of 2016, or July 2016. And then the recent one was May. So just last month. So when that inflation rate cuts in half, that has historically been bullish for the price because the miners suddenly have less Bitcoin to sell. And then, uh, and, and then they also, in order to recoup their costs, have to charge a higher price. Um, and so like that leads to this like boom and bust cycle that, that um, you know, it's, it's vol like volatility is purposely introduced to Bitcoin because of this, you know, abrupt change in the inflation rate, you know, like in a, in another, in another dimension, in another universe, perhaps their version of Bitcoin, rather than having this abrupt change in the inflation rate, um, perhaps, you know, they, they might have a consistent decrease in inflation rate. And so in that universe, maybe their supply wouldn't have these boom and bust cycles. Um, that, that happened in response to that abrupt change in the supply. Um, you know, but you know, that, that, but that, that, this is part of why I think Bitcoin is so like, was able to bootstrap itself from, you know, from zero to being, you know, a hundreds of billions of dollar network. Um, and so the historically, like, this is a good time to buy in relation to this, uh, you know, boom and bust cycle because, the inflation rate just cut in half. And when that happens, the miners who are not as um, efficient, so the miners that, um, you know, are, you know, mining at a loss. So maybe they're amateurs, maybe they're just not very good traders. Um, you know, maybe they, they're paying 16 cents per kilowatt hour of power, or maybe they have like outdated equipment or whatever. When the inflation rate cut in half, those people were put out of business. And so, like, the, uh, the, the happening happened on May 14th. And so you, you can see that the difficulty decreased because people uh, who were inefficient miners were put out of business. And then it reached an equilibrium where, you know, all of the, you know, between, like, you know, May 15th and now, like, you know, whole wave of miners who couldn't hang like they just were run out of business you know they stopped uh you know they weren't able to continue mining and so it became easier for the people that were able to continue mining so people that have cheap power the ones that run good operations and the ones who are able to trade well um and so that's why there was like an abrupt increase is because all the bad miners got shook out and so they stopped mining and then the blocks started being easier to find and so when the network needs to readjust itself automatically to try to hit the you know, new block found every 10 minute target, um, it just like abruptly increased. So to me, what this really high increase in, in such a short period of time means is that the, the, the level of sophistication of the, of the like industrial grade miners are becoming really, really good. Because these people are, that means they're very well capitalized. That means that they run really efficient mining operations. And so, and there's so many of them that when all the bad miners got shook out and capitulated, um, you know, there's so many of them still mining that the network had to adjust very abruptly. Um, and, and so you can kind of see that in the price too, um, where, 
Um, so June, May 15th is when it, when it happened. Um, so here, let's zoom into the four hour chart. So May 15th was about here. So leading up to it, you know, like there, this is like just, you know, the, the market's always shaking in one way or another, but then right after the happening, um, you know, a lot of these sellers started entering the market and um, what a lot of those people probably were, were miners who like were maybe in a lot of debt because, you know, they've been borrowing money to mine to run their operation. When they, when their revenue cut in half, a lot of them were put out of business. So that means like, you know, they're selling off Bitcoin um, because, you know, they, they have debtors or, you know, they, you know, need to like try to recoup some of their costs or, or whatever. And then, you know, and, and it's that, that selling activity is probably still happening too. Like as we speak, like, it's not just like an immediate thing that just happens on like one day. Um, but so usually there's like a couple month period where like all the bad miners just kind of, you know, sell off. And so, you know, there's probably, you know, bad miners who are going out of business or miners who are like, um, you know, about to be going out of business. Like maybe a lot of them are still selling. Um, and as soon as that kind of lets up, as soon as like the last group of miners who are put out of business, um, you know, finish selling off their Bitcoin, then that's probably when we'll, you know, we'll probably see another, um, you know, one or, you know, one to two year, you know, move to the upside as, you know, the miners are raising the price they're charging, you know, when the price is running and it establishes a trend, um, you know, people like to buy at that time. For some reason, people don't like buying when the price is low. People like buying when the price is high. And so, um, you know, probably over the next couple of months, we'll see another move to the upside. Um, you know, just from, just from the mining cycle, this doesn't even factor in, you know, everything else going on in the financial world, you know, with, you know, daddy Jerome Powell, you know, cranking up that money printer, um, you know, that, that, that's still happening in, in the background too. But, um, but yeah, like that, that's, that's what the, the, the that mining cycle ha does to the price. And so to answer your question about like, you know, is that like, you know, bullish for the price, um, you know, more people mining, it, de it definitely is, um, you know, because it becomes more expensive to mine and that means they need to charge a higher price to break even. Um, so that's, that's, what, that's what I'm expecting to happen, you know, over the next couple months. Um, does that answer your question? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was on mute. You just got the crash board. Yeah, I'm glad because... Uh, I'm glad you and Solomon are, are on for this because that's the uh, that's definitely like the underlying like economics behind Bitcoin is this whole like mining cycle um, like that you know that that is the like the Bitcoin business cycle like in in like the real world there's like the credit cycle where like you know the the central bank will um, lower interest rates that'll uh, you know make more people bar borrow money to invest you know, so the economy expands. So that's like a credit expansion. And then, um, you know, when the market kind of turns, it'll, you know, kind of go through like a credit contraction. And, you know, where, um, you know, lending is less easy to get, you know, less investment in business, bad businesses go out of business. And then, you know, the market kind of goes in those like, you know, boom and bust cycles. 
due to the credit cycle. In Bitcoin, there's no credit cycle. Bitcoin is an equity-based money. It's not a debt-based money. Um, and so uh, rather than having like a credit cycle, it has this mining cycle. And that's, and that's like kind of what gives life to, to Bitcoin. Because, you know, as the price is going up, um, you know, new people, you know, it's like free marketing for Bitcoin. You know, new people are adopting, um, you know, more people are having their eyes on it. And then, you know, more startups are getting funded. The infrastructure is getting better. But then as, uh, you know, the price decreases, um, you know, the, the bad businesses start going out of business. You know, the Bitcoin gets consolidated into the hands of people that really believe in it. Like the people who are willing to buy when the price is going down. Um, you know, the people willing to buy in, in like a crazy downtrend. Um, like the Bitcoin consolidates into the hands of people who have longer term time horizons and just like sucks supply out. Um, and, and so uh, that, that like creates like kind of the, the price floor. And it, you know, during that time, like, you know, new infrastructure is built, you know, the exchanges get better, everything just gets better. And it actually decreases the risk of Bitcoin. And so like, you can kind of measure the risk based on where this market bottom was, you know, so like, risk is like the opposite of like, like, like price is a measure of risk. And so like back in like 2011, when Bitcoin was $2, mm -hmm. like, it was very risky, like it could have gone to zero. And, um, you know, but you know, and, and that's why like the people that bought at $2 and still hold today, like they really do deserve that, you know, uh, what is that? 300,000% gain because they, they bore that risk. You know, it, it totally could have gone to zero, but as it went through that first boom and bust cycle, as a result of the mining inflation rate, when it found its price floor here, um, what you can interpret that as is from this $2 bottom here to this $200 bottom, um, Bitcoin's uh, risk reduced by what's uh, here. Uh, Bitcoin's here. I'll, I'll measure it the other way. Like from from this two hundred dollar bottom to this twenty dollar bottom or two dollar bottom, Bitcoin's risk reduced ninety eight percent. And so, even though the price is higher, there's less risk, and so more people are willing to buy. And that that's kind of what you know what what we continue to see here is where you know the the three thousand bottom after this like you know crazy run to 20k the difference there uh you know so from you know night from 3k to this 200 dollars bottom bitcoin's risk decreased 93 percent over that period and so um you know as like and because of this like because as the price goes up the risk profile goes down like as the higher the price goes the less likely it is to go to zero um Bitcoin's classified as it's called a Bevlin good. And that's, that's an asset where, where the demand increases when the price increases, like most assets and commodities, the demand increases when the price decreases. But because Bitcoin, this actually segments really well into, into one of the questions we're going to talk about, but like, because Bitcoin's only use case is to perform as money. Um, it fits this criteria of Bevlin good where as risk decreases, uh, you know, or as price increases, risk decreases, so demand increases. Um, and so that's, that's like kind of the major underlying economic like factor at, at play here. Um, which, you know, kind of touches on, on, you know, some of these, these questions, but yeah, so I mean, that, that's, that's kind of like, 
the underlying economics of, of, of Bitcoin and, and like kind of how you, you shouldn't interpret the um, interpret it. So if, if everyone's good with that explanation, I think we should probably move on to some of these topics that people had written in. Um, so, uh, so my, my friend Andy, he's been on a couple of these calls. Um, he, he asked, this is a really, really good question. He asked, what is the biggest risk or threat to crypto and its participants? Um, and so um, it, it raised a good question of like, what is risk? Um, you know, there, there's many different types of risk. Um, and so like, you know, I, I kind of like, I, I wrote down a couple here that, that are relevant to, to Bitcoin. Um, so there's like, what, what, I, what, what is like the, the, the most obvious risk is the exchange rate risk. That's the risk of you buying. Um, you know, it's the risk of you buying one day and then on a day that you might want to sell it, the price is lower than what you bought it at. So like, you know, what, what, you know, volatility, like, like, you know, that's, that's it. But, um, so like, you know, that, that's like, this is probably the, like the, this is the primary risk of, of Bitcoin is just the, the exchange rate risk. But on the other hand, like there's like, there's, there, there are two sides to the coin. There's risk and reward. When things have higher risk, that usually means that it has higher potential reward. And because Bitcoin has so much, um, you know, exchange rate risk, you know, like, because like there still is a chance, like, you know, although very small, um, although there's a chance of going to zero, um, you know, because there is that chance of going to zero, that is, that is potential energy for the price to go to the opposite of zero, you know, which is, infinite like you know be, because there's that risk and so things that have less exchange rate risk they actually have less um you know less upside um because you know risk is uh you know without without risk there is no reward and there is no reward without risk um you know and, and so a good um you know example of of something another cryptocurrency that uh you know, doesn't have risk um, is, or doesn't have exchange rate risk is um, Tether. So Tether is a, is a stable coin. It's backed one-to-one to, -one to, to dollars. And um, so this, you know, this is the Tether chart. So sometimes there are these like crazy wicks that like just happen for like, it, this isn't really like trading. This is just like usually error on, in reporting or like something went wrong at the exchange. So you can kind of ignore these, like, uh, you know, ignore those, um, you know, those big, those big wicks up to the top. Um, but you see that the, the, the price, you know, always hovers around $1. Like, you know, it's, and so, because there's less exchange rate risk, you know, there's effectively no exchange rate risk. Um, there's no upside potential, you know? So like, this is like the opposite of Bitcoin where like, you know, these stable coins have no volatility, but because they have no volatility, there's no upside risk. Um, and so like, but with that, um, th that's actually a good example because <clears throat> another type of risk is counterparty risk so counterparty risk is like 
the risk that the person that you're conducting business with is going to fail in some way. So this, and one example is if you, know, you buy on exchange and you hold on and you hold your Bitcoin on an exchange and the exchange gets hacked or loses your money, that's counterpart risk. And so like Bitcoin itself, like if you hold it, there is no counterparty risk. But if you hold it through a third party, that introduces counterparty risk. And so Bitcoin on its own does not have counterparty risk. Um, so, so no counterparty risk, but Tether for instance, Tether is, um, it, it's administered by a company called Bitfinex. Um, they're an exchange because Tether is, is mainly used for like, um, you know, for, for trading. Um, and since it requires like a real world bank to hold a one-to-one, -one, uh, you know, backing of tethers to actual U.S. dollars in a bank on reserve, um, there's counterparty risk in tether. And, you know, much like, you know, and, and so, and, and just like how, um, you know, when you, when you store your, you know, your U.S. dollars at a bank, the bank could be... The, the bank could be insolvent. And if that was to happen, um, you know, you could, you know, you may not get your money back. And so like when you hold dollars in a bank, um, you're, you're subject to counterparty risk. Um, and so like, that's the, you know, like th th this is one of the things that makes Bitcoin um, really, really powerful is that it's the only type of financial asset that other than gold, that does not have counterparty risk. Um, so that, 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 that's really important. Um, um, so the other type of risk is performance risk. Um, so that's, this is, I, I think is like secondary. And, and in many cases, like, I think this is probably the, one of the like largest types of risk. Um, performance risk means you lose your Bitcoin. So kind of what Daniel was saying at the front, at the start of the call where, Sometimes he gets nervous, like when he's making a Bitcoin transaction, uh, sometimes he's like anxious and nervous that he's going to mess up and send it to the wrong address or like, you know, not copy the, the, the address correctly. Um, that's performance risk. So, you know, mistyping an address, um, you know, this is like losing your, you know, your wallet backup, um, you know, allowing your wallet backup to be stolen. That's performance risk. Um, so <clears throat> those are like the types of performance risk. And so I think that like, this is how most Bitcoin has actually been lost. Like out of the 18 million Bitcoin total, um, something between four and six or 4 million and 6 million of those Bitcoin are lost forever. Um, and a lot of those were just people in the early years, you know, people like, you know, back in the day where nobody knew about it. And, you know, it was worth nothing. So even before it traded, so it started trading in like, whatever this, like in 2011, um, in like, you know, between two, 2009 and 2010, when it was like just this kind of obscure science project on the internet. Um, you know, there were a lot of people that, you know, got tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of Bitcoin and they just didn't think it was ever going to be worth anything. They, they, you know, they couldn't have predicted what it would have become. And, you know, they, you know, didn't write down their like backup private key or they 
you know, we're experimenting with it because at that time, like, you know, the wallets, you had to be a pretty much a software developer to use the wallets, um, you know, and, you know, when you're sending around like, you know, 10 cents of value, you don't really care. And so some people lost money that way. And so there's like, you know, four to 6 million Bitcoin just gone forever. And that is performance risk. And so just like as people become more educated um, and the services surrounding Bitcoin become better and easier to use, the performance risk goes down. But this is usually like on, you know, this is like something that's like personal to you as a Bitcoin user. Like, you know, are, are you going to make sure you don't mistype your address? And are you making sure you don't lose your coins? Um, so this, I think, is really important for people to be aware of that, like, you know, because Bitcoin is like, it's nearly impossible to steal. Um, like it's very, very difficult to steal if, if held properly. Um, you're more likely to lose it on your own than someone is to steal from you. Um, so I always tell people who are getting started to be just very aware of not messing up, um, you know, cause maybe, you know, maybe if it's like only like a thousand dollars of Bitcoin, maybe you'll be like, you know, pretty upset, but you know, imagine if it, that suddenly is now like $10,000 worth of Bitcoin. Like then it's, you know, then it's a problem. Um, so another, another form of risk, inflation risk. So kind of what we were talking about earlier, where during this time, the inflation was really high, you know, the inflation risk was higher. And so if you just flipped this, um, you know, flipped this curve upside down, um, that it, it's, it's a measure of the inflation risk. So um, as we, you know, like still, I mean, even right now, as the daily inflation is 900 Bitcoin per day, it's uh, so this is actually really good. Uh, like this is like a, like a key time in Bitcoin history because the 900 Bitcoin per day is about, what is that? 900 over um, like 18, eight, um, one, two, three. So that, uh, it's about 1.8% um, yearly inflation rate. And that is lower than gold. You know, so the rate of new gold being mined is now higher than the rate of Bitcoin being mined. And it's less than the, you know, central bank target, you know, rate of 2%. And so this was actually, this happening that happened last month was actually really historic time in Bitcoin because, you know, before then the inflation rate of Bitcoin was about 4% per year. And before then it was 16%. Um, and so uh, it's like, you know, it, it, the, the, the inflation rate risk, you know, gradually decreases over time. Um, and so even today, like, you know, that's something that is still holding the price of Bitcoin back is that, you know, there is, uh, there is still 2% supply inflation, you know, but still that is less than if you were to look at the, um, you know, something that we always love to look at. I, and I shared this in, in our, uh, with Will in our group chat, uh, where we're talking about the MZM. It was funny. I, I sent a, a group in this message. There, it's like a group of people who are like pretty active in, like in the financial markets. And I'm like, and I, I hid the, the name. I'm like, guess the chart. <laughs> and no one knew, but this is actually the, like one of the measures of money supply from the federal reserve. And so, you know, it's not slowing down. It's only increasing. Hold on. What's the time scale on that? Just for reference, because it's moving pretty quick. 
and I can't tell if that's like months or like decades. So this is the this is the monthly chart. Each of these candles is is a month. And okay, so this is so yeah. Right here, it starts at 1981 is when this started being published, and at that time, um, like from from 1981 to let me zoom out. So from 1981, where it was about that the total uh, U.S. dollar supply. So this isn't even like a full representation of the dollar supply. You'll have to just, I'm not going to cover it all here, but like, uh, you all should look up the different forms of money supply. There's MZM, there's M1, there's M2. Um, and, uh, it's pretty funny. Ben Bernanke, Ben Bernanke, or no, Alan Greenspan actually testified before Congress saying that the federal reserve doesn't even have a good, good definition for the money supply. Because like they just have they don't they don't know. Like there's no way to tell. But the MZM is it's a measure of money that is like it's it's meant to be liquid money. So money in checking accounts, saving accounts, money market accounts, and physical cash. So it's not even all the money. Like doesn't even count credit. Um but you know, from nineteen eighty one to now, the uh money supply has increased by about twenty three hundred percent. Um, and if you zoom in to Corona time, wow, that's insane. You know, look at these, like, you know, usually it's like increasing at like a rate of like, you know, per month around 1% per month, which is shocking. You know, they, they tout that the inflation is 2% because they, they tell you to look at the consumer price index, but they totally puts those numbers and they don't even count things like uh the things that really go up in price like healthcare, education housing like you know they, they throw out tvs like pretty much they, they make sure to weight that consumer price index of things that are made in china um so like you know the the, the cpi that all the like economists try to tout it's like totally not even real it's like the the money supply has always been increasing around like one percent per month right um, Mind is exploding right now. <laughs> right? It's pretty shocking. And, and so over the last three months, we've actually seen the largest increase in history where the money supply has increased by 20% in three months. Whereas in the last three months, so if we have, um, you know, so I mean, we'll, we'll even count like the, 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 the three months leading up to the happening. So we had 1,800 Bitcoin per day. Um, times 30 days in a month times three. So um, that over, at the time, there was like 18 million, say 500,000. Did I do that one? So even during a time of like, um, let's see, did I do this right? 18, 18, no, one more zero. <laughs> um, during this time, like during a time of relatively high inflation in Bitcoin, over the three months leading up to the happening, it only increased the supply by 0.8%. To put that in perspective. So over the same period, the dollar supply increased by 20%, but the Bitcoin supply increased by 0.8%. And, 
you can kind of see that reflected in the price. Um, you know, where you have, you know, over this time from, you know, over these three months, you know, the, the market shook out, um, you know, just when, when all the markets, you know, when, when the stock market crashed around this time, the Bitcoin market, uh, you know, crashed too. Um, part of that is because uh, Bitcoin's become very institutional. Like it's no longer kind of like in obscurity. Like this is a real thing that like real financial professionals, uh, you know, they're very aware and they're very active. And because of that, as people were getting margin calls on their stock positions, um, people, you know, like when, when, when people like borrow money to buy stocks and if the value of their stocks goes down and they get a margin call from whoever lent them the money from their broker, their broker says, Hey, you owe me this money. The value of your stock went down. So you need to cover your position. People will sell whatever is liquid. And since Bitcoin's so liquid, like, um, it's very easy to sell at any time, 24, seven, 365, you can find a buyer. Um, a lot of people who are getting margin calls on their stock positions, they were selling Bitcoin because it's something that's very liquid and it's very easy to sell. Um, and so that kind of, you know, led to a big sell off. And because in, in Bitcoin there, there's a very active lending and like trading ecosystem. Um, you know, there's a lot of people borrowing money to buy Bitcoin and kind of how we talked about last time where, um, you know, you can borrow, you, you put up Bitcoin as collateral and you can borrow against it and then you can buy, uh, you know, buy more Bitcoin with the loan that you get. Um, if the value of your collateral goes below um, the point to where, uh, like the, the value of your collateral go, becomes equal to the amount that they lent you, uh, you'll get liquidated. And so there's like this kind of cascading effect where people who have either stop losses where they have automatic orders that say, you know, if Bitcoin hits, uh, if Bitcoin hits $7,500 sell at the market rate, like automatically sell, you know, like, so if you look at this chart, like a lot of people had, like usually people place those stop losses at times with it was like a previous bottom. So back here in, in December, when, when the price hit a bottom of like 6,400, a lot of people, they don't think the price is going to go lower than that. And so uh, they have automatic sell orders kind of in this area. And so when the price hit that, you know, those people get, you know, get forced to, you know, they, they automatically sell and that push the price down. And even people that would, weren't like getting stopped out, but like, you know, people that were buying up here, you know, like back at this, everyone was like, oh my gosh, new bull run. Uh, 100k by May. That was what we were seeing on Twitter. So people FOMOing in. Um, you know, so these people buying here, maybe they had like a 20% stop loss. You know, so when price broke below 20%, you know, a wave of sellers of people that bought up here that wanted to limit their loss to 20%, they start selling. And as those people start selling, you know, combined with the people selling just as part of like the like broader like you know, market crash, you know, and it, and it pushed the price even further down. Once it broke here, you know, more people were selling and like, uh, you know, depending on how many people were borrowing, like th those are the ones that really push the price down is when people get liquidated. It's when the exchange lends you money. And then if the price goes down, if your collateral goes, becomes less valuable than your loan, they'll sell automatically. And so when you zoom in at this like very bottom day, um, 
you zoom in here, like this, like this wick down, um, you know, this 20% wick, I don't know if you can see on, on there, that just like, it, it, it only hit this price. It only hit the $4,000 price for just a few minutes because this isn't new sellers entering the market. This is people that are being forced to sell because of the, the value of their collateral went down. And so that's not, that's not necessarily like, you know, a decrease in demand. That's just like, you know, people selling automatically. And so that's not like sustained sell pressure. And so that got like zapped up immediately. And that was the bottom. Like it never went, went back down there again. Um, and so um, like that's the, um, like that, that's, that's kind of like what, that, that's just kind of like the, like how, what leads to these, um, you know, big, big sell-offs. Um, and like, uh, I don't, what, what was I even talking about? <laughs> You were kind of talking about the uh, technical resistance seems to be hitting, which is like holding back like the price from really going up because it seems like there's definitely a margin you're describing between like the uh, the oversupply of dollars basically going to drive the value of the dollar down yeah. while the undersupply of Bitcoin is going to drive that price up. So mm -hmm. that's obviously like, you know, looking forwards, that's a huge investment. I agree. Um, yeah. I'm kind of curious how, you think that's going to affect the short term unless you want to hop back into that last point. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I mean like short term is always hard to say, like the only thing <laughs> yeah, yeah. certain of is that it's going to shake around. <laughs> like I like, there's really no way to predict short term because like you don't know what the people that have the Bitcoin are going to do. There are mm -hmm. ways you can kind of infer that. Like, you know, there's like these uh, like Twitter bots called like whale alert. Um, whale alert. Yeah, and so this bot analyzes all the different blockchains. So right here, what it's showing is that, um, you know, twenty thousand or twenty million dollars worth of this stablecoin was created, meaning somebody deposited twenty million dollars of U.S. dollars to create twenty million dollars of this stablecoin, and usually that pumps the price because that's like twenty million dollars of demand but sometimes let's see if we can find some other ones um let's find a okay so you know people were moving large amounts of bitcoin from an exchange so 15 million dollars of bitcoin was transferred from binance so that's someone bought this amount of bitcoin and they brought it home so that usually pushes the price up because now this, you know, 1600 Bitcoin is not going to show up for sale on Binance. Um, and so like, you can kind of like look at this, but this is like a lagging indicator. Um, but it, it kind of can give you some clues. So short term, I mean, like the way I approach the short term is just to like always be buying when, um, when price is in below this green line, which it hasn't been for months. Um, even though like I, I'm always buying, like I'll buy the top. I don't even care. Um, cause once you have the Bitcoin, you can use this collateral, which is something we talked about in the, in the last week's session. But I mean, like you, you never know what's going to happen, but if you're just buying when prices below this green line, which is the average of all the, the average of the bottom of all the wicks over the last month, 
um, you're, you'll be in a good position. Um, so short term, that's that's like how I'd approach it. Um, but kind of like, I, well, I guess how do we how do we see that green line? How do I because it's good to see it on your screen, but how do I get it on my screen? That's a great question. Let's hear. I'll I'll pull it up right here. So the way you would be able to do that is go to Trading View, uh, yep. go to the daily chart, go to indicators, and just look up moving average. And then go to the settings on the moving average. Here where it says input. I change to 30 days and change it to the input to low. Hold on. Are you looking at um, trading view? BTC USD. Mm -hmm. I assume. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Okay, yeah. It's like a savings investment, like a long-term investment. This is like a okay. So Sorry, can you run through that one more time while I screen record it for myself? Just because you yeah. ran through that pretty fast. <laughs> All right, yeah. So um, you go to Trading View, you go to Indicators, you search Moving Average, then you click the Settings wheel on the MA. I change it to 30, 30 days in a month. And then. Oh, where was the Settings wheel? Real quick, I just like missed that. Right. Oh, okay, it's over there. I was settings. like zooming in. I'm looking at my phone. 30 and then change the source usually close like people use close i don't like to use close because it trades 24 7 365 so there's actually no concept of close in other markets mm -hmm. it makes sense to look at open and close but not here so i like to look at the low like what was the price floor on every day like what is the price that that like there was so much demand that price could not push lower um and so that's what you know that so 30 days source is low and then that gives you this this line so historically like you know that's always a like a good time to be buying even though like you know you could but like right here like you know price was um you know below this line but even like as of right now like even if you're buying up this whole time like price is already above that and so even if like you bought and price continues to go down like you should never go all in at any time. Like you should always have more dollars, either like more dollars coming in from your job or just like more dollars that you have ready to invest or Bitcoin that you have as collateral ready to extend a line of credit when the price is really low. So you can borrow and get dollars and then buy some Bitcoin. So like you never want to be all in like fully leveraged because you always want to have another chance to be able to buy when price is like not just below the moving average, but below the, um, here, let's look at the Bollinger Bands. You don't wanna just only buy below that moving average. You wanna buy when price, is, and you can do the same thing on this. So let's move it to 30 days and we'll change the source to the low. So you see the, like that average is matched up. That's what the Bollinger Band is. It's the moving average plus or minus two standard deviations. Um, so like you don't only want to just buy when price is below there. You really want to buy when price is below two standard deviations away from the moving average. Because what that means is that like, even though it's not normally distributed, like in statistics speak, um, like if it was, like you can kind of treat it like it's normally distributed, even though mathematically it's not. It's, it's chaotic. It's not a normal distribution. It's chaotic. Um, even like you can kind of treat it like it's normally distributed. And what this means is that on average, price is only below this line uh, 
I think 2% of trading days. So if you look up standard deviation, so get images. Uh, yeah. So you see this. So 95% of the time, price is within two standard deviations from the mean. So that's what this is. So when price is outside of this, so that means price is higher than this line two and a half percent of the time and price is lower than this line two and percent two and a half percent of the time. So, um, you know, but it, it like rarely hits, you know, so like even through like a, you know, this like long uptrend, like you never had a chance to buy. You only had literally two days to buy below this price, um, you know, so, but like if you were buying, you know, the moving, even, even buying the moving average, you only had like a couple more days. So depending on what your mm. profile is, um, you know, that's like how you can kind of choose when to buy. Um, and it's actually kind of well, good. Wait, I, sorry to hop in here, just to interrupt. Um, I think my, my understanding of standard deviations is that like if you're two away, then you can for sure be 99% sure that it's going to regress to the mean and that it's going to have to come back towards that like average, especially if you're looking at the low. So is there a way you can set that up to do like one standard deviation so we can be like, I think it's like 76% sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you go to the settings. And you can oh, cool. Yeah. So you see <laughs> now it gets tighter. So, um, mm. It, can you scroll over to today? Oh, wait, no. I just had to scroll over. That was my bad. Yeah, so oh, nice. It actually just hit the low recently. Yeah. So, right there, that yeah, so like, you, you might have, like, you know, like, you, you might just, like, when price is above, because sometimes it acts as a support. Um, you know, because what this means is that, uh, like, over this 30-day period, um, seventy percent of people bought below this price, and mm -hmm. um, you know, so like that means that not many people are in the red, meaning there are less people that are going to be in a rush to sell. Um, and so like sometimes it can act like that one standard deviation kind of act as support, but then it, you know it, it can break. So even like like right now it's like, you know, price had been, you know, it went way below. It busts right through the, you know, the minus standard deviation, bust through the moving, you know, hit the, hit, hit the moving average, bounced off it, bust through it, bust through the standard deviation from the top, and then, you know, kind of respected that, and, and that held his support for a month. Um, and then, it, you know, it bust through, hit the moving average, bounced off that, and then continued to respect that line. But now, I mean, you know, this is kind of, you know, what, what, what we're waiting to see, kind of where it breaks. And this might, you know, kind of move this. Maybe we might enter a downtrend over the next couple of weeks because price is now below this line. And if the market start like thinks that that now rather than skating on top of this, price is going to be skating below it. You know, maybe we'll have um, you know some time over the next couple uh, you know couple months where you know may, maybe price might enter down in these in this area. So. Mm -hmm. if it you know if it breaks through these lines um so there's no way to tell because you don't know what the buyers and sellers are going to do but you can kind of like look at the chart and see what everyone else is looking at when they're trying to make that decision 
Um, yeah, this in tandem with the money market thing you were describing earlier is going to be really interesting to watch play out. Yeah, yeah, and and because like you know it, it makes sense in other markets too. Like if you look at the S and P five hundred, um, you know like oh goodness. So, but this is actually like a really important thing. And I think like this is what I, I was talking about when I shared that video where uh, like using Bitcoin as the numeraire. So numeraire means the thing that you measure things in. So like right now, like most people, like they, you know, like right now we're looking at the, like how many dollars mm-hmm. is the S&P worth? But because the money supply is just run amok, like, like it really doesn't make much sense to measure performance in dollars. It's, it's like, as if the, um, it's like, uh, Jerome Powell. (laughs) Well, like I mostly agree, but it is, I think hard to say if Bitcoin is the answer as well. Like to be completely objective and honest. Yeah. Well, the the reason why, like, cause you could do it in anything. Like you could measure, you know, you could use the S and P as the, as the thing that you measure in. Um, or you could use gold, but the the reason why Bitcoin uh, has emerged as as probably the best thing to use in that case um, is because the supply is fully known in advance and it's fully auditable. Like you can go mm. to the, the block explorer, True. and you can you can know what the total supply is at any time, and you can fully validate mathematically what the supply is like you, you go here and um, let's see, like, you know, like you, you know what the supply is at all times. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also, you know, like gold is kind of similar in that sense, but with gold, what makes it difficult to do is that um, there's something that's been going on for many years that uh, Trace Mayer, who we're going to talk about later, he kind of burst onto the scene of like, as like a leading monetary scientist and legal expert, because he was part of this uh, group that was, they're called the Gold Antitrust Action Committee. And so uh, this is a, uh, like a group of lawyers who are, um, who are trying to expose, oppose and litigate against collusion to control the price of, and supply of gold and related financial instruments. And so there's something going that's been happening for, for decades where central banks suppress the price of gold um, because they need to empower their own, current, their own currency. Even though the central banks own massive stockpiles of gold, like you wonder why they would be suppressing the price of something that they own so much of. But to them, like the the value of being able to issue what is used as currency in any amount that is infinitely more valuable than the price of gold as a portfolio asset on their balance sheet. Like even though they have a lot of gold, they suppress the price because to them it's more valuable to be able to issue the money than the value of their gold that they actually have. Um, And so Bitcoin or gold is a little bit less useful in, in as a numeraire because um, there's interference in the price. Whereas with Bitcoin, um, because you can prove, like, because, like the, the way they, they interfere with the gold price is they, it's called naked shorting. It's where they sell gold that doesn't exist. And so that pushes the price down. Um, 
Whereas in Bitcoin, like if someone was trying to sell Bitcoin that didn't exist, uh, it would reveal itself in the market very quickly. Because if you bought Bitcoin from someone, you can demand delivery and you can validate on the blockchain that, you know, a transaction, you know, from this person to you went through and you can mathematically prove that they owned the Bitcoin they sold you and that it was delivered to you. Whereas if you're buying gold, you're usually buying a paper receipt to gold um, and you can't audit that they had the gold to sell you in the first place and you can't audit the total supply because like what are you going to do, melt down and, and recast every gold bar? And so gold is a little bit less useful in that sense because like you, you don't know those things, whereas Bitcoin, you fully know the supply and you, and you can prove that the person who's selling you the Bitcoin actually has it in their possession and you can take possession of it. Um, and so like, and, and then now that Bitcoin has become so liquid, um, like if we look at like Bitcoin liquidity, um, I don't even know what is a good measure. So uh, global order book, Bitcoin. This site always takes forever to load when we're on these calls. So we might have to come back to it. Um, but like, because Bitcoin has become so liquid, like there's so many people setting the price all across the world, like people all over the world demand this thing. And so there are people all over the world buying and selling. Um, the price is very accurate. Like if only like a handful of people were buying and selling, that price wouldn't be very reliable. But because I hope this loads, this is a really helpful thing, which I'm going to post in the chat. Um, like because like Bitcoin's so liquid, the price is really reliable. And because it's like Bitcoin isn't issued by any entity, like it's mined through a process where it takes tens of thousands of dollars of upfront cost to mine Bitcoin. We're like, you know, it, and, it, and it gives no advantage to anybody. Like there's nobody that has an advantage in Bitcoin. Um, it, it makes it much, much more difficult to interfere with uh, the price. And so like people, like whenever they like make a bad trade, they're always like, oh, manipulation. But even though like people that have a lot of Bitcoin can move the price, once those people run out of Bitcoin to sell, they can no longer move the price. And then they have to buy Bitcoin. And so like, even though they have a lot of Bitcoin and they have the ability to move the price more than, you know, you with maybe like a, you know, if you have like a fraction of Bitcoin, like you're barely going to move the price. Um, even though like the whales can move the price more, um, the reason why they can do that and the reason why it is fair is because by having that much Bitcoin in their possession, they're bearing a lot of risk. Kind of how we talked about earlier where there's, you know, the exchange rate risk. Like if you have a ton of Bitcoin and then the price, you know, and there's no one willing to buy from you, then like you're, you're bearing that risk. And so what they get in exchange for bearing that risk of holding so much is that like, you know, maybe they can kind of influence the trend. Um, but they can only do that for so long because once they run out of Bitcoin, then they're, they're all done. So I don't, I don't think this, this is going to load, but this site I shared in the chat, you can look at all the exchanges across the world and you can see how many Bitcoin are for sale, like on the public exchanges and how many dollars have bids ready to buy that Bitcoin. And so that's a good measure of the liquidity. And since there's so many people setting the price, um, Bitcoin is just a really good measuring stick. 
And so something I, I like to do all the time is, um, you know, like, you know, it looks like the, uh, you know, S&P has really been improving, you know, measured in dollars from March 23rd to, you know, we'll take, uh, we'll, you know, to today, it's up 42% measured in dollars. But if we were to, uh, you know, go to this chart, let's, let's change this to measuring S&P measured in Bitcoin. So all you do is just divide by BTC USD. Um, it's a very different looking chart. So from March 23rd, where is it? Let's, so from March 23rd, where's the price on March 23rd? So from March 23rd to now, the S&P is down 4.5% measured in Bitcoin. So like amidst, and let's look at what the, what the money supply. So, you know, fresh liquid money ready to buy stocks from March, let's look at the day. So from March 23rd to today, the dollar supply increased by 15% amidst the pandemic. And so in reality, the markets are down uh, you know, so down four and a half percent measured in Bitcoin, but since the dollar supply was, is up, you know, 15%, like, you know, realistically, like, you know, the value is down 20%. Like, so the, the dollar supply being up 15%, as opposed to its regular 1% rate of growth per year? Per month. Per month, okay. Yeah, so like as the dollar supply increases, you would expect um, the, the like, you know, like the assets to go up with it. But because we're in a pandemic, so like, you know, everyone like looks at the markets and scratches their head, like why is it an all-time high? Is because there's so much new money in the system. And like, so this, the MZM isn't even the best measurement for, for this because um, most of the money is not going to like people. Like this is like a measurement of like the money that individuals have because it's checking accounts, savings accounts and cash. Um, this does not reflect, like most of the money is, is being injected into financial institutions. And so like, this isn't even the full picture. Like this, is, this paints a really incomplete picture. Um, but like, because of like, you, you don't know what the supply of the dollars is like, you know, it looks like people are having people who bought the S and P at the bottom. It looks like they're having massive performance, but if you measure it in, in something that's like actually a good measuring stick of the value, they actually have a loss, you know, they had a 5% loss over that period. So, um, like, and, and, and the reason why, like, it's, it's important to measure your financial performance in this is because, like, believe it or not, like, uh, Bitcoin actually is becoming the risk-free asset. 
because the only form of risk is the exchange rate risk. Like, and you know, where, where you would otherwise be measuring your performance against dollars. Now that Bitcoin is like, you know, emerged as this type of asset class, it is become like for people that are in the know, Bitcoin is the risk-free asset. Bitcoin is the thing that people are measuring their performance against. Um, at least people that are like in the know. And, and like until everybody is in the know, that's the, that's like the potential upside, you know, cause that's like, that's why like the people that bought Bitcoin when it was $2, they were in the know, like, you know, the, the only advantage that people have is knowledge um, and information. And so like, that's why it's important to really learn the stuff and understand the stuff and really like understand what, what this all means, because that's the only advantage you can get. Like you, no matter how hard you try, you're not going to be able to manipulate the Bitcoin network. Um, so you can't gain an advantage to manipulating it. Um, but what you can do is you can learn this stuff earlier than other people. And that's like your, your potential profit is like, you know, the people that are, uh, you know, not paying attention, they're going to be buying your Bitcoin when Bitcoin is, you know, worth, I don't even like to quote price of Bitcoin in dollars. Maybe we should, you know, quote the price of Bitcoin in some type of calorie. So if we measure Bitcoin divided by um, rice, so this is like a bushel of rice. Uh, rice features continuous. Yep. So one Bitcoin right now is worth 777 bushels of rice. So 700, uh, so let's rice futures. Let's make sure it's bushels. Okay, so per 100 pounds of rice. So rice, so how many ca calories per pound of rice? Hey, Brian, we're gonna have to head out real quick. Okay. But, uh, All right, no problem. Yeah, thanks for joining. Really great questions, uh, and you'll you'll I'll put I'll share the video once we post it. Awesome, uh, yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, thanks thank for uh, thanks yeah. for sharing this, man. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so, like right now, Bitcoin is worth uh, so per hundred pounds of rice. Um, so five hundred ninety-one pounds of rice times one hundred times seven seven seven. Let's hope I calculate this right. Bitcoin is worth. 45, that can't be right. Oh no, so that's calories. So Bitcoin is worth 45 million calories right now. So like that's, that might be a better way to measure the actual like purchasing power of Bitcoin because measuring it in dollars, you know, the, the ruler's changing, you know, like what's going on here. It's like as if the Federal Reserve declared that um, there are now 10 inches in a foot and now everybody who is five foot is now six feet tall and they all rejoice. They're like, finally, we're six feet tall, you know, but they're the same number of inches. And so, and the same height. So that's kind of what, like why it's unreliable to use dollars as the measuring stick is because the supply can just be diluted at any time. Um, and so, um, yeah, I mean, that's, 
you know, that, that's the risk that you have in dollars. I, I think that's what got us into this uh, was, you know, the, the inflation rate risk. And I think we also kind of touched on, uh, you know, in that, uh, you know, it kind of answers, you know, the question that Will actually asked was like, what happens to the Bitcoin economy if there's a global market crash? Like, there's no way to tell what it's going to be worth in dollars. Um, but because, um, like, 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 because it's, it's like not useful to measure it in dollars, you should measure it in things like, you know, other assets. So measuring it, you know, like how many bushels of rice per Bitcoin, or maybe, you know, how many shares of the S and P 500, you know, like right now, you know, one Bitcoin is worth three shares of the S and P. Um, and so those are the, like, you know, it's, there's no way to tell what's going to happen because a global, a global market crash, the way that that'll probably happen is, is like another hyperinflationary event. Like this may be the start of it. Like, is this hyperinflation is, you know, where it's kind of humming along at like a normal rate and then boom, might that be hyperinflation? Like in Venezuela where they were having to wheelbarrow around stacks of cash to buy a loaf of bread. Um, is this the start? Maybe, maybe not, who knows. Um, but that's probably what a global market crash will look like because they're not going to run out of dollars because they can always print more. And they may do things like what they have done in Venezuela where rather than printing more money, like literally in Venezuela, they ran out of, of uh, ink to print. And so they just told people to add zeros to all their bills and, and they just added a zero to everyone's bank account. Um, so like, there's no limit to how many they can print in response to whatever crisis that they lurch from and to. So, um, you know, you, you can't measure this stuff in dollars. Um, and, um, and so measuring it in Bitcoin is, you know, is like the way to do it. But during a market crash, like people, um, this is something that actually Trace Mayer touched on in his book. So I brought up this photo. Um, so this was in 2009. So like there are these different like kind of layers on top of money. So it's like gold and silver at the bottom. Like these are the things that can't be printed. Um, you know, they're the like, you know, this was, this book was written before Bitcoin. So now Bitcoin is in this category. But then on top of that, there are like these, you know, currency illusions. So these are like euros, uh, you know, yen, pounds, dollar, you know, so not Federal Reserve notes. Um, you know, those, that's kind of like that next layer. And then on top of that, there's this like layer of, you know, the treasury bills, government bonds, U.S. debt, which just surpassed like $23 trillion. And on top of that, there's like, you know, securitized debt. So all the bonds issued by all the businesses and municipal governments, all the stocks in the world. And so like, um, like during a collapse, people move towards safe and liquid assets. So they move out of these like, you know, derivatives, for instance, which are just like people placing bets on what the future value of something's going to be. And they move into, you know, maybe they, you know, they start moving into, you know, like these hard assets, like commercial real estate, residential real estate, you know, so we've kind of already been seeing this, like, you know, real estate prices have been gone really high, um, you know, um, and then, you know, we, we've been seeing like, you know, the stock market, you know, at all time highs. So like money, like maybe that's, maybe this is like the start of a major collapse where money starts moving down this pyramid. And, you know, like, so like stocks pumping in price, 
that's like, you know, kind of like the next step. And then like, as you know, the writings on the wall that there's like, you know, we're in the midst of a, of a major currency collapse, um, you know, as the, you know, like people sell off of these assets that rely on other people to buy. And they're like, you know, trying to get physical cash. Um, you know, then when, when all hell really breaks loose and the only answer for governments to do is to print more money, then it burrows down into things like gold and silver and, and now Bitcoin. So the purchasing power of Bitcoin is probably going to increase in a global collapse, but also with other things that like, like what I recently learned is that like Venezuela has been going through a couple years of hyperinflation. Cars are in really high demand. Cars hold their value pretty well. So people are like stockpiling cars in Venezuela. Um, same with televisions. So like physical assets, like hard things that, that, that like provide utility. Those are things that people like, it's like a race to spend your money when the, when the money supply is just like printing into oblivion. It's a race to spend it. And so um, long, I guess long story short, if there's like a major global collapse, um, you know, there, there could like, a lot of the value could find its way into Bitcoin because it's something that is insulated from this. Like the markets will crash because there will not be an end to the dollar printing or the other national currency printing. And Bitcoin is something that like responds really well to that because it's completely insulated from that. Like no matter what's going on outside the world, um, the, you know, new blocks are going to be found every 10 minutes. And it's just going to keep chugging along at, at the same rate, you know, where 6.25 Bitcoin will be minted every two, every block. So, um, you know, if there's a big crash, you know, Bitcoin could appreciate in value, but that doesn't mean that life is going to be good just because your Bitcoin's valuable. If people aren't producing things, you know, quality of life's going to go down. Like if all the businesses go out of business because, uh, you know, there's like a massive currency collapse, there could be food shortages, you know, all the businesses that were relying on the currency system before, they're going to come to a grinding halt. And so even though you might have a lot of Bitcoin and like Bitcoin might be in high demand, life could be really, really shitty. And so like, you know, a lot of Bitcoiners are kind of wanting like there to be this big crack of boom where like, you know, we'll all be vindicated and be like, yeah, I told you, but like, it could be a pretty bad life. But within like any type of crash, that's opportunity for entrepreneurs. Like if all the food production comes to a grinding halt because there's a currency collapse, then that's opportunity because there's still going to be demand for food. And so someone's going to need to produce the food. And so, and then they will produce the food in exchange for the thing that they demand. And if that thing is Bitcoin, then there's going to be more demand for Bitcoin because you need the Bitcoin in order to, you know, pay someone to produce the food. Um, and so, if there's a big collapse, it might be pretty bad, but whenever there's like a collapse, that's just, entre that's just entrepreneurial opportunity. That's, that's opportunity for someone to step in and provide that food or provide that service that's in, in demand. Um, so that's kind of my outlook on, on, on what might happen. Um, and, you know, don't fear, but, you know, just like be prepared. Um, so yeah, I guess we, we, we covered that one. So we covered how much value we added if there's a big collapse. Um, we covered um, risks. That was a really good one. Um, quickly, let's just cover what is Bitcoin and why should you buy it? I mean, you kind of painted out the case already. Bitcoin is just money. Um, 
you know, digital money. And the reason why it's a strong form of money is um, because the only use case it has is money. So there's something like, there's something called monetary premium. And what that is, is the, it's, it's, you know, it's a rough definition, but the portion of the aggregate value that something carries related to its relative function of a transmitter of value. So gold has a monetary premium, but gold's monetary premium is less than Bitcoin's because with gold, there are other forms of demand other than for its use as money. You know, you might buy gold for ornate purposes. Like you want to make jewelry or you want to wear jewelry. Like that's a use case of gold that isn't really money. And so that interferes with like how the market is setting the price of the money. Um, and same with like electronics, like there's a massive industrial use case of gold because gold has the right layout of atoms and molecules such that it, um, such that it uh, is a very good conductor of electricity. And so there's a lot of the demand in the gold, in the gold market <laughs> is to get gold that they put in your iPhone. Um, and so like, because there's other use cases of gold other than money, the monetary premium is less than that of Bitcoin because in, in Bitcoin, the only reason that you would buy it is for speculating on the value. And because of that, Bitcoin has a hundred percent monetary premium. It's only use case is money. And so that's what makes Bitcoin, you know, a better measuring stick of value. Kind of how we're talking about like, you know, measuring financial performance in Bitcoin. Um, that also contributes to it because the only use case of Bitcoin is for establishing value and transmitting it. Um, and so it's, it's a really strong form of money because it has that focus in its use case. There, there's like sub use cases of Bitcoin, like timestamping, like, um, you know, uh, so like when Satoshi mined the first block, um, he encoded a message in the block Let's see if I can pull it up. He encoded this message. Um, January 2009, Chancellor on brink of second bailout of banks. So part of this was just like a political statement. Like, so this kind of shows that like Bitcoin was created in response to all this chaos. The, the chaos in that case was the 2008 financial collapse. Um, but like a, a sub use case of Bitcoin is timestamping because if something appears in this block, like, you know, so we, we can even go back and look, let's see if we can, uh, I wouldn't even know how to pull up the op return. Maybe, uh, I don't, I, I, I would, I wouldn't even know how to, how to turn this into this. Um, but like, you know, that's one use case. So sometimes people might like, you know, kind of like a notary public, like marks that like this document existed on this date and you have to just rely that like the notary public like is telling the truth or it's not a fake stamp. You can timestamp information because like if that information existed and it's in the blockchain, it's infinitely po impossible to like have like injected that after the fact. So like, that's like a small like use case of it. And so there's actually like, there's like 
debate in, in like the Bitcoin developer community of like removing that functionality because it introduces a use case that is outside of its monetary use case. And that's the whole point of Bitcoin is to perform as money. Um, and so like, that's what makes things strong money is that the only reason for its existence is to have money. And uh, uh, like a kind of an adjacent question is, does Bitcoin have intrinsic value? Like, so, you know, people that, that either don't know or like are willingly ignorant, like Warren Buffett claim that Bitcoin does not have intrinsic value, but that's incorrect because um, a lot of Bitcoin's value comes from its intrinsic properties. So the supply of Bitcoin, um, that's an intrinsic property that gives it value. Like people demand Bitcoin as money because it has a reliable supply. And so that's a form of intrinsic value. Like it's provable scarcity. Um, that's something that, you know, is unique to Bitcoin and is, and solely exists like as part of Bitcoin's intrinsic properties that enable it to have that value. Um, and so, you know, that's an example of its intrinsic value. And also, you know, its ability to be uh, transmitted over a communication channel. That's another like intrinsic property that, you know, is a form of value, you know, where, where people may demand Bitcoin because they can send value from here to their family in Venezuela. Um, and so if anyone ever like, so this is like a, a very common misconception and, and something that like a lot of people, um, you know, really kind of miss out on. Like there's so many people that didn't buy Bitcoin when it was a hundred dollars. Cause they're like, Oh, it doesn't have any intrinsic value. You know, where's the earnings? Where's, you know, where's the cash flow? all that stuff, those people are wrong. Like, you know, and the people that listen to those people are extra wrecked. And so anytime that like, you, you might start thinking that Bitcoin doesn't have intrinsic value, um, think about its intrinsic properties and what about those intrinsic properties create demand. Um, and so, you know, that kind of goes into why you should buy it. So number go up, you know, kind of what we were talking about here, like, you should buy it because it, it insulates you from things like this. And you should also buy it because, um, you know, it's, it, it, you know, has a good chance of, you know, really outperforming other assets. Like you have to, you know, benchmark, you know, cause every time you buy Bitcoin, you're bearing the opportunity cost of having bought something else. So like, you know, on any day you could have bought the S and P 500 instead of Bitcoin. And so if you, you know, go back here and then, you know, measure, measure that, like, that's a measurement of, you know, did it go up in value? And so like, you know, that, that's like a big reason, like speculative reasons. That's a really good reason to buy it. Um, you know, but you could also buy it because, you know, you can send it instantly across the world. That's another you know, reason to buy it. And how you should buy it. Um, the easiest ways are on Cash App and Coinbase. Um, I wouldn't recommend, there, there are ways you can buy it in person. Um, so like, what was it called? Uh, Bitcoin by cash. Um, so this is very risky. I would not recommend that you trade Bitcoin in person with a stranger with cash. Like that is not a good idea. Like countless people have been robbed where someone's like, Hey, I'm going to sell you this Bitcoin. Um, come here with a, a big envelope of cash. Um, and then they go there and then the person didn't even have the Bitcoin is robbed them. So 
don't do this. Uh, but you know, if your risk tolerance is higher and maybe you have like adequate protection and maybe you like trust the person that's selling it to you, you can do it there, but I, I would not recommend that, you know, just stick to cash app and Coinbase. Um, cause you know, these are San Francisco companies, you know, Coinbase is, you know, based out of San Francisco, American investors, you know, us companies. So there is legal recourse when they screw you over and same with cash app. So although like you have to give up your, um, you know, your information, that's just something that you have to like, you know, factor into your risk profile. Like, are you going to take the risk of being able to anonymously take possession of Bitcoin by showing up to a stranger's, you know, meeting up with a stranger in a parking lot with a, with a bag of cash and hoping that they actually have the Bitcoin they're selling you and hoping they don't rob you? Um, or is, you know, the, the fact that Coinbase or Cash App has your, a, a copy of your driver's license on file, you know, like who's trying to, you know, like which one is a, is a bigger risk to you. So I would err on this side because this actually goes into um, something we were talking about earlier where like, you know, the biggest risk. Um, so this is like a risk we didn't touch on um, is the sovereign risk. So will Bitcoin ever be outlawed in the USA? Um, so as of now, there, there are actually some, um, this, is, this is actually a really interesting story. There, were some, there was a Supreme Court case in 1995 that actually kind of laid the groundwork that would make Bitcoin very difficult for the U.S. to outlaw. Um, so in this case, Bernstein versus the Department of Justice, they ruled that, that code is speech and it's protected by uh, the First Amendment. Um, and so because of that, like, sending Bitcoin or being in possession of Bitcoin, that is executing software code. It is performing math. And so math and software code are protected uh, as speech. And so there were, you know, this, before they banned Bitcoin, they would probably have to like overthrow the Supreme Court. So before Bitcoin would be banned by the U.S., the U.S. would be like would have to have like destroyed what makes the U.S. the U.S. So, in order to ban Bitcoin, the U.S. will have to destroy what the U.S. is. So that's like what you know, that's what's working against it. And th there are things that are kind of moving in in the direction of like in favor of Bitcoin. So like Wyoming. Um, so this is uh, like so Trace Mayer, who we're going to talk about in a little bit he helped compose this, these laws that, um, you know, Wyoming's now enacted a to total of 13 blockchain laws, making it the only U.S. state to provide a comprehensive, welcoming legal framework that enables blockchain technology to flourish for individuals and companies. Um, and so part of this is that it clarified that, that Bitcoin is property and uh, which is protected you know, by the U.S. government, like U.S. like U.S. legal system protects your property rights, and so Bitcoin is property. So, like already, Bitcoin is fully legal. So, if the United States was to backtrack on that, where they're like, okay, Bitcoin is now illegal, um, that would be a really big shift in, uh, you know, in the property rights that the U.S. government claims to protect for you. Um, so that's like even further, like, you know, 
makes it even more Bitcoin difficult for them to go back grip. on. What'd you say? Bitcoin has its grip. Yeah. So like it, it's definitely become, you know, entrenched and it's like protected under, under the law. But dude, these governments are lawless. Like they, you know, that, that is the risk is that like, you know, if the, the mob rule determines like, oh no, we're going to like do something else. Like, you know, Supreme Court could be gone. Property rights could be gone. But the thing that is protecting you is that it is mathematically impossible to seize and you cannot take it with force. Um, you know, so like if they were to make it illegal to perform math, you know, and the governments decided to kill their customers for performing math on the internet, which like, you know, institutions previously had done, like look at Galileo. He was convicted of, her of heresy because he was presenting the idea that the earth rotated around the sun. And that was a threat to the political power of the church. And so, um, you know, the, 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 the church, they didn't kill him, but they put him under house arrest where he died. So in effect, they, they killed him. So, you know, they were killing, um, you know, their customers, their people for performing math. He figured this out because he was measuring shadows. Um, and, you know, so he's just performing math on his own. And so are we going to go back to 1616 where like the institutions that only exist because people give them the power to exist? Are we going to go back to that time where like we will allow institutions to kill citizens for performing math? Um, I, I don't think so. And if that was to happen, that could be really bullish for price because killing like killing like if, if they were to round up all the big like everyone who had bitcoin well first like if bitcoin became so valuable that it was a threat to these institutions like um you know that one that's like a good thing you know because like it's it, it will have become so valuable that it like disrupted like the global order and the global power structure um and so what's more likely than the, than the institutions to try to fight back against it they will just be forced to adopt it or they will just go out of business because the only thing they have is this money printer. And like, you know, when Rome was the world power um, at the start of Rome's history, the Roman denarius, which was their, the currency, it was the, the first global reserve currency. The Roman denarius was made of hundred percent silver, but over time, the Roman denarius became made of 100%, I think, pewter. And so during that time, like, you know, early on, anytime somebody would go and disrupt the aqueducts, so Rome's, that's, that's the thing that allowed Rome to establish like a sprawling society was that they figured out plumbing. So Rome's big innovation was, was a plumbing system, toilets, and, you know, drinking water. And so like early on when, when the Roman denarius was hundred percent silver, anytime, you know, like some, uh, you know, foreign group would come and like attack the aqueducts, the, you know, Roman centurion were very motivated to go and fix them and go and fight off that, that you know, fight off that threat because they were getting paid. They're like the wealthiest people. They were like wealthy. But then like over time as, Rome debased its currency to enrich the political class. Um, when their aqueducts would go and get destroyed, 
the, you know, the Romans who were getting paid in pewter, not silver, they were less and less motivated to go and fight that battle. And so that's what, you know, a major thing that contributed to the collapse of Rome was that they debased their, their currency and, you know, their, their soldiers were just less motivated to go do that. So like if Bitcoin, the value of Bitcoin relative to the dollar or any other, you know, world currency, uh, you know, if Bitcoin was to fully overtake that, and, you know, the government's decision would be to go and try to, you know, kill all the Bitcoin holders. What are they going to be paying the, the people that they need to go and like have go and like assert that force? Like, you know, if there's something so valuable that the governments can't print, the only thing they can print is the dollars. Like maybe they'll go and kill a couple people, but the people that have the Bitcoin will have the resources to protect themselves. And so like, you know, the, the people who like, you know, the, the Bitcoin whales who maybe the governments will target, they will have more purchasing power than the government. And so they will be able to finance better protection of themselves. And so the, the people that the government would try to send out to go and kill the, the people, the Bitcoin holders, the, you know, the people performing math peacefully, um, like, the, 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 those soldiers probably just, you know, they, they won't be able to last very long. They'll run out of energy. They, you know, they won't be able to hurt that many people. And so, and all they could do, like, even if they went and killed them, all that would do would just lock up that supply. You know, kind of like Satoshi, who's probably dead. He has about a million Bitcoin that have never moved. You know, if like they went and kill all like the wealthiest Bitcoiners, that would just pump the price for everybody else. Because now like, you know, those hundred thousand Bitcoin that, that, you know, somebody owns and that person you know got killed because they were like a political threat to the establishment um you know now everyone else's bitcoin just became more valuable and the government didn't get that person's bitcoin so it completely changes like the game theory and so like although there is sovereign risk like in india they always go back and forth on banning it at least in the u.s it's like already fully protected by supreme court cases from the 90s plus recent uh, state legislation. Um, but then also like, because Bitcoin can't be seized or taken by force, that drastically increases the cost of coercively taking it from people. Like where, um, you know, so the, like in, let's pull up executive order 6102. Check this out. Okay, let's pull this open. Um, so can you all see this? So yep. under executive order of President FDR, issued April 5th, 1933, all persons are required to deliver on or before May 1st, 1933, all gold coin, gold bullion, and gold certificates now owned by them to a Federal Reserve Bank branch or agency or to any member bank of the Federal Reserve System. Criminal penalties for violation of executive order, $10,000 fine or 10 years imprisonment. So in 1933, the Federal Reserve Bank made it illegal to hold gold and demanded delivery. If Trump or whomever comes after Trump demanded Bitcoin, do you think people would give it to him? For anyone here, like, 
if no. Trump told you to turn in your Bitcoin, would you turn it in? There's no way. There's no way. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and so the difference yeah. here is that, like, you know, Kit. What, what are you saying? It, well, it's ironic that this is also around the time that the, the war, like the war on drugs and, and all that started out. It's just, just a really like great group of people around that time. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, and, and the reason why this was possible is because the gold is physical. You know, it's, it's, it's tangible. Some people turn away from Bitcoin because it's not tangible. But, be, but like there's risks in things being tangible because like for, for them, the ROI of busting into your house, taking your gold was really high because they, they can take possession of the gold. But if you hold Bitcoin and that you know, that private key or your recovery phrase only exists in your, in your brain, you know, they would have to torture you into giving it up. And how many people can they torture simultaneously? You know, whereas like they could like, just like, you know, drop bombs on all the major U S cities and then go in with a metal detector and go and like collect all the gold. You know, and that, that's like they have a really high ROI because they can take possession of the physical gold. Whereas like with Bitcoin, like it would take a lot of energy and a lot of resources to go and collect it. So, you know, like, you know, like it's just a different game now. Like now there's an asset that can't be taken with force or coercion. And so, well, less than a hundred years ago, you know, it was illegal to hold gold is just becoming more and more difficult. One, like just because of like the laws that have been passed recently that make it more difficult for the United States to like legally do that. But even if they decided to, if the government decided to just like scrap the laws and they're trying to take possession of the goal of the Bitcoin, like good luck. I mean, you know, how are you going to do that? How are you going to execute it? Like it's, you know, so like people that hold Bitcoin just have so much on their side, protecting them from this sovereign risk. You know, where like, you know, if, if people that hold Bitcoin can outlast these sovereign entities, the people that with the Bitcoin will become the sovereign entities. Like, you know, where you're the one in control of your money. Like you assert your property rights for yourself by performing math. Like, you know, you don't need to pay a government with a military so much to, you know, uh, enlist a, an armed force to protect your property rights like you can assert the property rights and you know that's that's the big shift and and that's like a big reduction in sovereign risk where like u.s dollars those could be gone tomorrow like all your dollars could be seized like they can take them absolutely and they already do through through this like they don't even need to go into your house and kill you they can just print money and give it to themselves or like you know they could enslave you. There was, you know, hundreds of years of slavery of, of black people where they were, you know, black, like where, where the black people were very productive. Like they were producing all the industries, you know, all the agriculture, cotton, um, you know, everything was produced by the slaves. And so they were very productive, but slaves weren't able to capture the value created from their productivity because they, they had, they could not assert any property rights because they, because it was profitable for their oppressors to keep them in chains working for nothing 
and there was nothing they could do. Whereas now there's a form of money that like you can be productive out in the world and create things that people demand and collect payment in something that you sovereignly hold for yourself. And so it makes property rights, you know, that much more enforceable for yourself. Because if you have to, if you have to rely on someone else to assert your property rights, that will only last so long as they determine that it is more profitable to assert your property rights than it will be to seize your property. And so being, having this as like a, a backstop, it, it's really empowering for individuals. And that's why I think it's so important for black and indigenous people who throughout history have had their property rights infringed upon by, uh, you know, by the United States. Um, not the United States, you know, just people at that time. Because these are people, you know, people were putting, you know, slaves in chains and forcing them in the fields. You know, people were out putting smallpox in the blankets and distributing them to the Native Americans. And so those people who had their property rights infringed upon by people that had more firepower, like now for the first time in history, there's something that can't protect your property rights. And so that's why like this is so important for, for all people, but especially especially black and indigenous people and any other oppressed people, you know, it's, that's in the United States, but you know, in all countries, there are people who have been oppressed and stolen from and enslaved. Um, and so for, for the first time in history, there's something that, that, that protects them from the sovereign risk. Um, yeah. So we, we, we covered a lot there. <laughs> um, does anyone have any questions on that topic or from the, the uh, risk one? There's, I guess, and we covered the what is Bitcoin and why should we buy it? Let's check that off. Um, yeah, the, the sort of like on the sovereign risk like category, do you see like looking at the way the tech is made right now that we access the Bitcoin on, could there be a way in that capacity that they could hinder your ability to access or buy or use it, meaning like Apple, like on, on, your, on your iPhone, you can't have uh, a wallet, right? You can't have, or you can have a wallet, but you like MetaMask doesn't sync up. Is there risks like that, that could, that you could see, like that could ruin this, I guess. Excellent question. Um, yeah. So like that, you know, that's, it's like this never ending game of cat and mouse where like, you know, some type of stone wall is put up. And then because there's like this, like, you know, something infringing on your ability to use it, it's a problem. And anytime there's a problem, that's entrepreneurially opportunity for someone to solve. And so like, you know, they cut off one thing, then it makes it profitable to like figure out how to circumvent that. And so like the act of them trying to suppress these things is the only thing that like, can produce solutions to the oppression. And so like, like your example with Apple, like it's fully relevant, like with what Apple's cutting off are wallets that have, they're called DAP browsers. So like, you know, when you want to go and buy Hex on Uniswap, um, like with Trust Wallet, they, they have an alert in the app that says in a couple weeks, uh, you know, this version is no longer going to be available and you won't be able to use DAPs through the, through this app because, um, it has to do with like the like money transmitter laws and so because like Apple cannot be liable 
like because Apple is subject to the U.S. government's laws, and um, well, and that's where that's where I I think it gets tricky is them writing them writing policies that then these companies have to follow. Mm-hmm. Where is that? So you're saying is that what you're saying is already happening? Yeah, and and so like you know the response to that is either increased demand for Android or someone finds a you know a mobile browser based solution you know so that's that's like the response to that would is just going to be that they're going to be um you know that like with the mobile web browser someone finds a solution or some other way to transmit the signature that is undetectable so maybe that's like combination of like some type of vpn plus encrypted messaging plus some router of the message to where like from apple's perspective or the internet service provider's perspective, it's indiscernible from sending any other piece of encrypted information. Um, and so like, you know, right now there, those solutions don't exist because that problem doesn't really exist. But if there's like any time that like, it's gonna be cut off, you know, through that, then, you know, maybe it'll be difficult for a while. Maybe you have to like get on your laptop to make a transaction. Uh, or not not to make a transaction it's just to do the daps that's the thing it's because like like the the wallets themselves at least now like are totally legal you know there's nothing that's wrong with that um but like some of these daps because there's like exchanging involved um that's where it like that's why there's pressure on apple that's why apple can cut it off because it's at their discretion but then like you know that's maybe that's the demand for some type of like open source app store or like open source mobile phone where like anyone can like, you know, write that and like run their own code and compile their own app store and compile their own apps. And then they like, that can't be shut off through a court order. Um, and so, you know, and, and it's uh, like, and even like with the internet service providers, like that's a great, you know, like China tried to do something like that. It wasn't successful, but the response to that is, you know, if like the internet service providers were suddenly going to start cutting off Bitcoin, then people will just move to the satellite. You know, there's a network of satellites, you know, for no internet required, reducing Bitcoin's dependency on internet access. Everyone in the world now has an opportunity to use Bitcoin. You know, saves costs. You don't need to like, you know, pay for internet. Stable network, you know, not relying on, you know, other sources of, of internet connectivity and it covers the whole world. So like, you know, there's a whole network of these satellites where you can pull the network from. And so all you need is, uh, you know, a Iridium satellite receiver and you can interact with the Bitcoin network. So like, it's like this game of cat and mouse where like every time they try to cut something off, the market will produce a solution because there's opportunity there. And so that's like what makes this thing so resilient is that like, it's already rooted in this, like, you know, it's already like, you know, it was started with like this, you know, like a a message against the establishment, like a message where, you know, we're no longer going to put up with this. And so to anything that like the establishment might try to, to suppress it, like there are motivated people ready to solve that problem. Um, so that, that's, you know, so that, that's like another thing that reduces the sovereign risk. It's just like the whole nature of this thing. 
Um, so yeah, that's, uh, those are, those are my thoughts on, on, on that. Um, <laughs> so I guess this, this is actually a really good question. So my friend, uh, Charlie, who had a real, he had a really cool, uh, virtual reality startup. I don't know if he was able to make it on the call today, but, um, he asked a question. It's really a question. So like, um, so although you can never make more than 21 million Bitcoin, wouldn't increasing the number of digits behind the decimal, is, is that considered inflation? So like right now there's eight decimal points in Bitcoin where the smallest unit is called a Satoshi. Um, and so the question is like, okay, if, you know, Bitcoin becomes so valuable that like, there are things you might buy that are, that cost less than one Satoshi. How would you do that? Um, and would that be technically inflation? So this is actually a really good question. So like in aggregate, it wouldn't because just like cutting it up into smaller pieces would not reduce the, um, you know, like, so cutting into small pieces would not make it become greater than 21 million total supply like that that's you know dividing by a greater number isn't increasing the top number um but because there is um like because there's a like a bitcoin transaction fee there actually is a minimum unit that you can actually buy or transact because if the minimum, like, let's look at the block explorer. Let's see what the minimum fee is right now. Let's see if we can quickly find this. Fees, 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 fees. Where can we find fees? Um, we just look at a at a block and look at what the fee was. So in this block, all the people, so there were how many transactions? Oh my God, there's a lot. So, so 1,200 Bitcoin were transacted in this across 680 transactions. So, and the total amount of fee that these, these 680 people put forth was 0 0.0626 Bitcoin. So 0 0.0626 divided by 680 is 0 0.00009 Bitcoin per person. So per like each person paid about, um, what is that? 0 0.1231 times 9,500. Each person paid under a dollar of fees. So if you were trying to send less than a dollar of Bitcoin, you would not have been included in this block. So because there's a, like, because there's a finite amount of space in the block, so only, um, the, the limit is two megabytes. Um, like, because only two million bytes of space can be used in a block, you know, the maximum number of transactions is somewhere around a thousand, one to 2,000 transactions per block. Um, because it's finite, there's a mark, like there's a fee market. 
And because there's like a, you know, people are bidding to be able to get their, their transactions included, um, there becomes a price floor of the minimum number of Satoshis that can be sent at any time. And so although the minimum unit is 0.1, if you're trying to send point, or if you're trying to send one Satoshi, it could take weeks or potentially never, it could never get included. If there are always people paying more than one Satoshi in fees, whereas like if you only had one Satoshi to send, um, you know, your transaction could never be included. And so this, you know, one Satoshi could be just locked forever. And so by having a, a fixed number of uh, divisible units, um, that actually makes Bitcoin deflationary because as the transaction fee goes up and there's this concept of dust, which I think we've talked about where like, if you send some, you know, some Bitcoin, like say you have like, you know, say you have 0.3, you know, one, two, three. So say you have 0.1234567 eight Bitcoin and you want to send um, you know, point one, two, three, four, five Bitcoin, you're going to be left with point two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight Bitcoin in your, in your wallet. So if this, you know, point zero, 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 six, seven, eight Bitcoin is less than this transaction fee price floor, then that, uh, you know, this Bitcoin is as good as gone because you could never send this to like another wallet because it is less than what the minimum transaction fee is. So it'll never make its way in the blockchain. So having this, uh, you know, decimal place even further reinforces the, like it's a deflationary properties. So in one way, like if it's not necessarily inflation, but it decreases the rate at which it deflates. So if that is inflation, then the answer is yes, that it increases the inflation of Bitcoin, but it doesn't increase the total supply, you know? So if like people were so like, like if Bitcoin became so big that like this was the minimum, like if, if they needed to decrease the minimum unit, um, that would be a, you know, a pretty big debate amongst like the Bitcoin community because like new features get implemented all the time, but it's part of this like social consensus where like, you know, people put forth feature updates all the time to the code but unless the majority of people running the nodes of the Bitcoin network adopt that code, then it won't happen. And so there's two things there's called, so there's hard forks. And so that's where like everybody, everybody needs to change, needs to update the code. And what that does is it actually creates two chains. So like when you go to Coinbase, you might see Bitcoin and Bitcoin cash. So Bitcoin Cash was the result of a very contentious hard fork where um, Bitcoin Cash was, it was a monetary policy debate where like, you know, in Bitcoin, there's this limit of a two megabyte 
block size. Um, so let's go to the new, you know, it's like this size right here in Bitcoin, the limit's two megabytes. Um, but, you know, so that makes the fees go up. So sometimes like the fees are really high. And so, you know, one group of people with a different economic perspective than the people who are like, you know, the, the people who are good enough software developers to get their code accepted by the network. Um, you know, there's like a, a, you know, two schools of thought. The Bitcoin people, some people actually wanted to decrease this number. They wanted to make the fees more expensive to make them more scarce because people in Bitcoin love scarcity. Um, whereas Bitcoin Cash, uh, these people were trying to make it more for, uh, you know, micro transactions. So these like Bitcoin Cash people were trying to improve the currency properties of Bitcoin. So its ability to you know, send cheap, cheap transactions, frequent transactions, um, you know, like that, that's what they wanted. Whereas people in, in Bitcoin, you know, they want, uh, you know, they want infrequent transactions. They want high fees. They want like this block space to be really valuable. They want scarcity. Like in Bitcoin, they were favoring the monetary characteristics, you know, so the finality of transactions, the ease of, of validating these nodes. Like they were, they, like they want to protect the supply and the ability to audit the supply. Bitcoin people want to protect that at all costs. Whereas Bitcoin Cash people wanted to increase that block size, which would make it more expensive to validate the, the supply, which could introduce supply like issues. But they, they wanted to make that trade off to support fast and cheap transactions. And so the only way to implement that would be to have a hard fork. And what that does is it splits the chain into two. So now there are two cryptocurrencies. So on the day of this hard fork, everybody that had Bitcoin also had the same number of Bitcoin cash. And then it's up to the market to determine which one is which. And so there was like this contentious, it was like a mining war where people that were running the Bitcoin miners had to make the decision. Are they going to continue mining the two megabyte blocks or are they going to move to mine the eight megabyte blocks? And the miners actually ch like chose Bitcoin, the original version. And so like, the when people, that? what? When was that? 2016. Oh, 2016. Okay. Yeah. And so like there was literally like a war where no one was killed, but people had to make their decision of what side of the war they were on with their money. Are you going to, because now everyone had Bitcoin and the same amount of Bitcoin cash and all the Bitcoin miners could either mine Bitcoin and earn the Bitcoin transaction fees, or they could mine Bitcoin cash and earn the Bitcoin cash transaction fees. And so like, you know, when there's political disputes in the real world, sometimes that ends in like bloody violent war. When there's political disputes in the crypto world, the market determines what is the correct decision. And so when you look at the, the, the chart of BCH, BTC, how do we get the full history? probably on Bitstamp. 
so like Bitcoin cash has only been going down in value relative to Bitcoin because like, you know, when it's, so it actually happened before this and the Bitcoin cash people were actually like, there were some like pretty big names that were like on the side of, of Bitcoin cash. They're on the big block side of the debate. Um, they were selling their Bitcoin and, you know, selling their Bitcoin for Bitcoin cash to push the, the price of Bitcoin cash up relative to Bitcoin. And they were mining at a loss to try to establish the Bitcoin cash chain as having more proof of work behind it. They were trying to like, because whichever one would have had, it's called the heaviest blockchain, would be the one that would have emerged as the real Bitcoin. And so the, the like Bitcoin itself emerged as the winner in that. And the people that were trying to prop up the price of Bitcoin cash to try to, they're trying to make what happened, they're calling it the flippening. So that would be if Bitcoin cash ever hit one. So this is what they're trying to get the price to. They're trying to make the price of Bitcoin cash greater than Bitcoin. They're trying to push the price up to this level. Um, you know, to try to flip it because then the, 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 the miners would have switched over to mining Bitcoin cash and then the, the Bitcoin cash blockchain would have become heavier. Um, there's a group of people trying to do this. And the only way to push the price up is to sell the Bitcoin in exchange for Bitcoin cash. And so it's not even shown here on the chart. I wish I could find it here. Let's see if we can find a different chart that actually shows ECH. Let's see if we can... Uh, this goes back a little bit further. Um, okay, you, you can't really, uh, I, I don't know which, which one is actually going to show the whole history. But they were trying to prop the price up to try to, f to flip Bitcoin. And they never could. And so the people that were doing that, so someone named Roger Ver, he was originally called Bitcoin Jesus. He has personally given out more than like a million Bitcoin. He used to travel the world and just give people Bitcoin for free, like back in like 2010. So he's like, he's one of the wealthiest people in Bitcoin. But he got massively, massively wrecked by trying to prop up the price of Bitcoin cash. Um, and, you know, and he wasn't the only one. So there's also, uh, you know, uh, his name was Jihan Wu. He was the CEO of the... Um, of the company Bitmain. Bitmain is the leading uh, manufacturer of Bitcoin mining equipment. Roger Ver convinced him to try to, so he was the one mining at a loss to try to make the Bitcoin cash blockchain heavier than the Bitcoin blockchain. So he was part of the group that was trying to push the price up of Bcash and, you know, selling Bitcoin for Bitcoin cash. And so, you know, they're the ones pushing the price up but then the market overwhelmingly pushed it down. And so like Bitcoin cash lost 95% of its value relative to Bitcoin. And so these people got totally annihilated. And these are insiders. Like when you think of insiders in Bitcoin, like Jihan Wu, you know, CEO of the company that makes all the mining hardware. Roger Ver, you know, known as Bitcoin Jesus, uh, you know, 
he owned the website bitcoin.com you know like you know early investor in like major bitcoin startups like he was like one of the first people to promote bitcoin so like these are like the insiders of all insiders and like the market takes no preference over those people like even though they had a lot of the supply they had to like whatever decision they made they had to take that risk and they took the risk and the, and the market proved them wrong. And so they, they had to take the loss. And so like when there's like political disputes and like monetary policy disputes in the space, like nobody has an advantage. It's fully up to the market to determine who's correct. And so like, you know, that was happening, you know, in like that, that was part of what made Bitcoin really run up in price was that it, it like went through something where like the, the most, insiders of all insiders were trying to take over the network and put forth a monetary policy change. They're trying to make, make it more expensive to verify the blockchain. You know, they're trying to make more transactions happen per unit time. And those people had billions of dollars to do this and they still lost. So that contributed to the, you know, really big run up in 2017 was it like in 2016, Bitcoin was put to the test. And there was, you know, this big political dispute amongst the community and people with a lot of power were trying to take over the network and they failed. And so that really pushed the price up. So like, you know, that's kind of what, uh, you know, that's we an extraordinary, I had, I, wow, that was, that's an extraordinary story. Right. Wow. It's, it's great. It's something not many people knew about because that was like before Bitcoin really burst on the scene. And I guess where I was going with that is like, will the decimal ever move? So like to, to move it, um, I could be wrong, I, but I think it would require a hard fork. Uh -huh. um, as opposed to there's like other updates in Bitcoin happening, they're called user activated soft forks. So that's something where it's like a backwards compatible change where you don't need everyone else to update. So okay. like, like Bitcoin people love user activated soft forks because they don't require anybody else to do something. Like for a hard fork, it requires everybody else to like adopt your change. And people in Bitcoin already don't trust each other. Um, and so like, you know, people are very, like it has to be a really big deal if, if people are gonna like make a hard fork, which have happened, but they probably won't happen very much anymore. Like early on when Bitcoin was trying to find its footing, hard forks were more common. But as of now, like, I don't even think many hard forks will, will happen much more and that means many features won't really be built like into big like if they're like new features that the market is demanding it does not need to be built into bitcoin itself and if it does the features that are more likely to actually get rolled out are going to be ones that like people can voluntarily adopt so things like segwit that's like in like at the same time like so the bitcoin cash people they were trying to just you know, increase the block size. So literally they're trying to change one variable um, and make a, make a scalability improvement by changing the limit from two megabyte blocks to eight megabyte blocks. But there's another group that is trying to increase, um, increase scalability by, um, by uh, rolling out SegWit. So SegWit is segregated, it's short for segregated witness. I really don't even know what this means. This is like a very technical thing. Um, and what it did is it just like removed required information 
that needed to be in the blockchain. So rather than increasing the size, like increasing the amount of data that can be in the blockchain, they just reduced the amount of data that was required to be in it at all. And so this was like a, like a, like a, like a good optimization because it didn't force anybody to change their software. Like it's, it was fully user activated. So it's a soft work, meaning you didn't need to adopt it, but like most people did anyways. Um, and so I'm not exactly sure what a decimal move would be. I think it would be a hard fork, could be a soft fork, I'm not sure, but it may not ever be that way because um, like if Bitcoin was so valuable that like microtransactions were required, those microtransactions don't necessarily need to be on the Bitcoin blockchain. You know, like if you're trying to send um, a microtransaction, Ethereum is great for it. You, you all saw like, you know, in using MetaMask, like you can send tiny amounts of Ethereum. And so like, if you need to make a very small transaction, as long as there's a good way to trade Bitcoin for Ethereum, and as long as there's very liquid markets so that the price is accurate, um, like Bitcoin itself doesn't need to scale, but other blockchains with other trade-offs can take, you know, those really small transactions. You know, so that's like one way to scale Bitcoin is just to scale other blockchains where, you know, like things like, you know, where we're like, you know, changes in code. Like you don't want, like if, if gold suddenly changed the molecular makeup of gold, like that'd be a big problem. And so like with Bitcoin, you don't want to like change the molecular makeup of Bitcoin very much unless you really have to. Um, but like with other things like Ethereum, like Ethereum loves making updates. Like Ethereum's trying to roll out Ethereum 2, which is like a complete new chain. Like the Ethereum, because it's meant to be more of like a utility, as opposed to like Bitcoin is meant to be like a gold, like that base money, whereas Ethereum's trying to be like the, you know, the power grid or the telephone system. Like, you know, it's, it's a different use case. So it has different trade-offs and it just attracts different mentalities. And so like, you know, like, you know, you, you can scale other things. And as long as there's a market between those two things, then, you know, the small transactions can be over there. And when people need to settle into Bitcoin, they can trade for it, you know, where, or like, you know, there, there are things like Lightning Network, which is a, um, it's a, it's like a way, it's like a, a thing that's built on top of Bitcoin where um, you pretty much lock up Bitcoin and then you can transact Bitcoin without actually moving the Bitcoin on the blockchain. Um, and so this is like a way to improve the scalability of Bitcoin where you, like rather than, um, you know, making the like Bitcoin decimal point move over to the left, you can just represent fractions of the minimum decimal of Bitcoin as units on Lightning Network. So like, that change wouldn't need to happen on Bitcoin itself, but it can be implemented through things like Lightning. Um, so more likely than a change to the Bitcoin protocol to support smaller transactions, that's just the entrepreneurial opportunity, if the market demands it, to produce software that enables you to transact smaller amounts of Bitcoin, but without actually having to make any changes to Bitcoin itself. So that, that's, that's probably what's going to happen is that like, as it needs to scale, um, it'll scale outside of the actual like Bitcoin protocol, um, which is how it should be in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So 
Um, Brian, I'm going to have to hop off. I can't yeah, I mean, believe it. I get halfway through the um, topics. <laughs> yeah, I, I knew it was, was going to be long. Uh, we didn't get the Trace Mayer one, but. Um, Damn it. That was like, that's like the Nancy Drew mystery, Brian. <laughs> I, I, if you got to go, yeah, that, that's totally fine. If, if you want to, and, and you can see the, the, the recording, that's totally fine. Um, you still talk about him? Huh? Will you still talk about him? Yeah, yeah. All right, I'm just going to have to carry you my ear then while I get some dinner because I'm starving. Okay. So. <laughs> All right. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll just go ahead because you know, we'll, we'll capture on video. I think Daniel had to hop off too. Um, but I'm putting you in my ear for sure. But, okay, so um, for the people watching that don't know Trace Mayer, um, Trace Mayer is uh, someone that I think could be Satoshi, like, or at least involved with Satoshi um he whoa really yeah so um wow. he wrote he wrote this book the great credit contraction uh before bitcoin existed he actually released it around the same time as bitcoin and that's where this this chart came from um the like that that upside down pyramid that that outlines all the different forms of money in the world and all the different forms of capital in the world um and like in that book, if you did like a control F replace every word, every time the word gold came up and just replaced it with Bitcoin, that book would make entire total sense. Um, and so Trace Mayer and, and like around that time, Trace Mayer also had a website called How to Vanish, which Satoshi did, like Satoshi vanished. Um, Trace Mayer had a, had a privacy website where he just taught people how to be like private on the internet called How to Vanish. And he, um, you know, was a major like gold investor, <clears throat> you know, for the reasons why, like, you know, uh, you know, like for the same reasons why he invests in Bitcoin is the same reason why he invests in gold, you know, for all the things we kind of outlined here today. Um, and he was involved with this guy named Adam Back, who I meant to bring up earlier when we were talking about the Supreme Court ruling, um, where, um, let me just pull it up biggest risks where Adam Back in a form of political protest, like before the Supreme Court ruled that cryptography and performing math was freedom of speech, there were actually numbers that were illegal to possess. They're called illegal primes and there were illegal algorithms to execute. Like, so like cryptography algorithms that the military used, those were considered munitions. So they're protected under the Munitions Act. And this guy named Adam Back, who is cited in the Bitcoin white paper, um, he created these shirts called munitions t-shirts that said, this shirt is classified as a munition and may not be exported from the United States or shown to a foreign national. And it literally was just like, a, uh, like an, an equation that was illegal. And part of that Supreme Court ruling we talked about earlier um, like he, he, he could have been arrested for wearing or like wearing the shirt into another country. And so uh, this guy, Adam Back, uh, Trace Mayer was involved with him before Bitcoin existed. So Trace Mayer was kind of in this like crowd of people where like Adam Back was cited in the Bitcoin white paper, um, for his work in cryptography. Uh, he's a mathematician. Um, and so uh, Trace Mayer's just kind of been plugged into Bitcoin from the very start. 
And I think, I don't think he was like the one writing the code, but maybe he was giving like monetary science, uh, like advisorship to Satoshi or the group of people that was Satoshi. Um, but that's unknown. Uh, people have asked him and he's always denied it, but that's what Satoshi would do if he was vanished. Um, but he was also like the first person to recommend buying Bitcoin as an investment at about five cents. Um, he was writing in his gold blog about buying Bitcoin. Um, and so he's like, you know, leading monetary scientist and legal expert in the space. So he wrote some of the legislation that Wyoming passed. Um, and, uh, you know, to like kind of assert the, that Bitcoin is property. And, um, you know, so he was just kind of like a hero amongst the Bitcoin community. But pretty recently, um, at a Bitcoin conference, he was passing out these little flyers. They were talking about Mimblewimble, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. So Mimblewimble is, it's like a fully anonymous cryptocurrency, like where unlike Bitcoin, where you can go into the block explorer and see every transaction, like who was from, who was to, and how much it was. Um, Mimblewimble, you go into the block explorer and you can not see who was from and who was to. All you can see is this gobbledygook number that only the person who sent or received the transaction can verify. But what you can verify is the total supply. Whereas like other anonymous cryptocurrencies, you can't fully audit the supply. That's the big innovation in Mimblewimble is that you can have full, fully anonymous transactions, but you can also audit the supply. And this is a technology that Trace Mayer had actually talked about as far back. Like I, one of the first Trace Mayer videos that I ever listened to back in 2017 was an interview where he was recapping what happened in Bitcoin in 2016. He actually mentioned Mimblewimble technology. And almost in every interview, he'll talk about this technology. And what he had said in the past was that, like, because things like the, like, Mimblewimble, it, like, was originally invented with the intention of, of building it into Bitcoin and making Bitcoin truly anonymous. But because of how contentious the Bitcoin cash, uh, you know, update was where it required a hard fork, Mimblewimble would have required a hard fork. And the, like, it was just very unlikely that Mimblewimble would actually get rolled out into Bitcoin. And so Trace Mayer, like, acknowledged that from the start, is that, like, you know, there's all this new development going on and some stuff might make it into Bitcoin. If it can be rolled in through a, through a user-activated soft fork, it will. But things like Mimblewimble would require everyone to update it. So the chances of that getting rolled out are much less. Um, and so because of that, like, that's opportunity for these other currencies to exist outside of that. And the, the demand for having fully anonymous transactions will be reflected in the exchange rate between Mimblewimble coin and Bitcoin. And so kind of like how the scalability of Bitcoin can be offloaded to Ethereum, um, privacy of Bitcoin can be offloaded to Mimblewimble. As long as there's a good way to trade between the two, like if you need a, a fully private transaction, you can trade Bitcoin for Mimblewimble, transact the Mimblewimble, and then pop back into Bitcoin. And that would be like a fully anonymous, like untraceable transaction. 
So like uh, Trace Merritt had always been promoting Mimblewimble technology, but these people that are in this, like they call themselves Bitcoin maximalists. They think anything that isn't Bitcoin is a scam. Like they actually think that. So these people are the same people that were like trying to say hex is a scam. Like literally the exact same people were, they have like ostracized Trace Mayer for like telling people at this Bitcoin conference that they should look into Mimblewimble because it's like really disruptive technology. And so the, the Bitcoin maximalist community, this very vocal crowd of people like fully canceled him. They're like, oh, this guy's a scammer. He's a shitcoin shill. He's, you know, this, that, and the other. When this guy has like, one, like provided so much price support. Because Trace Mayer, like, he's alluded to roughly how much Bitcoin that he might have. He's probably one of the few individuals that has over 100,000 Bitcoin. Um, like, he's one of the mega whales. Like, he calls them wizards. Like, the wizards are the ones with like hundreds of thousands of Bitcoin. Like the dragons are people with like tens of thousands of Bitcoin. The whales are people with like thousands of Bitcoin. The dolphins are like hundreds. And the, you know, crabs have ones and the shrimp have decimals. Like, you know, it's kind of, there's kind of like a pecking order. He's a wizard. I love it. He's a wizard. Yeah. Like you never know how much he has, but he has a lot. And, um, so by having a lot, that's providing so much price support. Like Bitcoin would never, never have hit 20,000 if someone who uh, considers himself uh, the hodler of last resort. So that's like, he kind of like brought about this phrase of hodler of last resort. Like in like the central banks, they're the lenders of last resort. Um, you know, when there's a crisis, markets are crashing, they will inject, you know, they will lend this money into existence because they're the lender of last resort he considers himself the hodler of last resort, meaning no matter how low the price is, he's going to be buying. And so he kind of like, you know, he brought that term into the, um, into the world. And, you know, so like that provides a lot of price support. So if he would have sold at 20 K, the price could have gone way more down further than 3000. Like, and so he's really like an instrumental person in the community, but these idiots who think that, anything that isn't Bitcoin is a scam. They just like completely like turned on this guy. And since that happened, he's not tweeted once. He's not done a single podcast, hasn't done a single interview. This is after doing like literally he's been doing regular podcasts since before Bitcoin even existed. And he just fully fell off the face of the earth. And like, no one knows where he is. No one knows what's happened. Um, But something that, he actually alluded to in one of his interviews uh, a couple months before this incident. I'm going to play it right here. He actually alludes to that, you know, he's been offering free Bitcoin education to the public for many years, for 10 years now. And he did that altruistically. And now that, you know, the happening has happened and Bitcoin are just becoming more and more scarce he said he's no longer going to be training his competition for free. And that while last decade was the decade of altruism, this decade is the decade of competition. So here, I'm going to play this. And so I think that what happened is that like, he was already getting ready to 
stop being in the public eye, at least so much. And then, um, you know, I think he had gotten involved with Mimblewimble because like, he's like close personal friends with like the people that built the Mimblewimble technology. Um, and when you read this, like if you listen to enough Trace Mayer uh, podcast, you'll see so much like, you know, a lot of words that look like they came straight out of Trace Mayer's mouth. Like, you know, all the, like literally this, Trace Mayer probably wrote this web page. Um, and so I think that like Trace Mayer, like in the, in the spirit of like vanishing, you know, his, his old website from before Bitcoin was how to vanish. And now that he's been like, you know, part of this, you know, like bringing about this innovation, this privacy innovation, um, and like kind of transitioning from like giving out free information from just like an altruistic, like this guy's a Mormon. He literally goes out and he builds schools. Like he, he goes on regular missions. Like he, he like goes and builds schools in South America. Like he's a, he's, he's a very active volunteer. Wow. Yeah. And so like, you know, he, he, he gives and gives and gives, and this is like really like he inspires me to just give and like wow. help people and like, you know, he, he'd done that for so long, but like now that like, you know, having happened, Bitcoin's on the scene is like a global thing. And it's like no longer just a toy or an experiment. Like, I think that he just took like, you know, all this public backlash for all these people that he had made so much money who just like turned on him for talking about something that he's been talking about for years. Um, I think he just took that as his opportunity to just step away. And we may never hear from Trace Mayer ever again. You know, because he already knows how to vanish. You know, he used to have a site called How to Vanish. He's, you know, probably one of the people that's like, you know, accumulating a lot of this Mimblewimble coin and like part of like, you know, these kind of inner crowds of this. Um, and all these people were just assholes and calling him scammer, shitcoin shield, all this stuff that I think he just kind of like stepped away and just took that as his time. So, maybe we won't hear from Trace Mayer for another decade or ever. Like he could be like, because this guy has so much money because like, not only does he have like probably a hundred thousand Bitcoin, he's also was the seed investor of Kraken. So he would like, he kept Kraken alive. He invested in, you know, the exchange that I use. He invested in Kraken. He invested in BitPay. So that card that we talked about, he was a seed investor in BitPay. Um, and he was the seed investor of the most secure Bitcoin storage, which was Armory Wallet. He, he funded the development of this, like the most secure way. So the way that like all the exchanges hold their Bitcoin is through some version of Armory. So like, you know, he's got that security and privacy element locked down. So and he's just stupid, you know, stupid wealthy, like where, like, you know, he, he, he's noted before that, that his Kraken investment has outperformed Bitcoin. So back in like 2013, he invested dollars in Kraken. Those dollars are worth more than what he would have got having just bought bit, more Bitcoin at that time. So he's tremendously wealthy, has very diverse sources of income. And how, old he, how old is he, Brian? Um, I don't know how old he is. He's, he's in his, uh, probably in his late thirties. Mm -hmm. 
and and what how did he come how did he come up like like who was he at 20 like who was he at 18 uh he was a so when he was a kid like a teenager he was pretty active in these like online games where people would buy and sell stuff so like um i don't even know what it's called uh like things like magic the gathering so he was like you know kind of into these like digital assets and like early on you know through these like games where people would like buy and sell swords and shields but he was a regular kid he didn't come from like a mega wealthy family oh yeah literally like he's uh i think he was so he he was known to like live most of the year in Nevada, I think for tax reasons. Mm. So, so he was born in Florida. He, he grew up in Florida. Um, and yeah, he was a regular kid. Um, he, you know, he, he tells stories about how his, his dad was studying for an MBA while like he would sit on his dad's lap while he, his dad was in grad school. Um, and uh, when, he, like a, a story that he tells is that when like he he first started understanding money when he asked his dad if he could have a bicycle and he's like yeah how are you going to pay for it and so uh he would walk around with a wagon and collect cans and go and collect nickels and he saved up to buy a bicycle so he wasn't wealthy growing up um but he kind of came of age like when the internet was like really kind of starting and you know so he was very into the internet and then he he studied accounting in in college at BYU. Um, and then he went to law school at like some law school, I think in Iowa or Idaho. I, I can't I can't remember. No, no, it was in California. So he went to a law school, like some like kind of small law school. And in law school, um, he studied monetary history and monetary law. So that was kind of his foundation. And then he was a lawyer part of that. I think I talked about earlier, the gold antitrust action committee, which was trying to litigate against manipulation in the precious metals markets. So like he was part of that and he was an investor in gold money. He made a lot of money in stocks and in like oil companies. Um, And he, you know, was just kind of into that whole scene. He invested in something called gold money, which was like, which was meant to be a, um, I think gold money has um, these like debit cards that you can spend gold in or gold with, like a BitPay card, but for gold. Um, so he was an investor in that company. And, um, and then like just kind of at the right place, the right time when Bitcoin came about, he was already plugged in with people like Adam Back and already into like privacy and already into money. And so, he, you know, kind of came around Bitcoin right at the start and then uh, was like, you know, he considers himself like the first like Bitcoin investor where he was buying it for speculative purposes, not for like, you know, using it to like transact money. Um, so that's like Trace Mayer's like Bitcoin history. Um, so he's like literally like, like Bitcoin wouldn't have happened without him. Like there's no way. Um, and he was just like fully ostracized from the community. And so I think he just took that. He's like, all right, well, fuck you guys. I'm going home. <laughs> Working on stuff. And so, 
uh, let me play what he said that kind of that makes me think that he just dropped off because a couple so in October he said this. So he was like ostracized sometime in January. But let me let me play this and. Uh, I mean, keep in mind when you're educating people, you're actually training your competition for those those scarce satoshis. Um, you know that might not be the best idea. I mean, I think the first decade was a decade of altruism, but this next decade, um, as Plan B talked about, you know, with the with the Black Shoals model, there was a decade where that that model was able to be exploited before everybody kind of wised up to it. You know, and I think this decade might be that decade for Bitcoin. And so this might be the decade of competition. You know, the first decade was the decade of altruism. This next decade uh, might be the decade of, of competition for those Satoshis. And, you know, and, and so, you know, we, I, I don't know why people think that they need to spend a bunch of money like educating people for free to become their competition. I mean, I did it because... I wanted to gather a core of gold bugs and libertarians so that there would be a particular political constitution among the main early adopters of Bitcoin. And then if they're the benefits beneficiaries of this wealth transfer, then they're going to change the political constitution of the world, you know, because they're going to have a lot of money to do it with, you know, so I, I had, I had ulterior motives, you could say, besides just, uh, <laughs> besides just, you know, spreading Bitcoin in that sense, I wanted to spread Bitcoin to particular niches of people uh, that shared particular ideologies. Um, but that, you know, now Bitcoin's kind of out there for everybody. I mean, do you really want a bunch of Bernie Sanders supporters to, ha to, to have a bunch of Bitcoin? Right. I, I mean, I just don't know that that's the wisest thing, you know, because now you're arming them with a bunch of uh, financial resources, <laughs> you know, so at, at your own expense. You know, I, I, you know, what's, what's the, what's the age old axiom? He who has the gold makes the rules, you know, so this is the age of competition. And so who's going to have the Bitcoins, you know, 10 years from now, like who's, who's going to have them and, and who do we want to have them, you know, is another question. <laughs> who do you want? And so, oh, I was just saying, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I want, I want Bitcoin hodlers to have them. I want people who understand Austrian economics to have them. I want people who have a, a, you know, good time preference, good sense of opportunity cost, uh, who, who I, I'd prefer they be self-made as opposed to some trust fund baby. Um, you know, people who've really, you know, had to be scrappy. You know, those are the people that I want to have the Bitcoins, you know, instead of, uh, you know, having them go to whatever trust fund babies like uh you know, we, we just don't need more of that. The sooner they burn through all the, that intergenerational wealth and the sooner that intergenerational wealth gets transferred to a new generation who's got uh, values that are more conducive to building civilization because of this time preference difference, uh, you know, the better, in my opinion. That's who I'd like to see having the Bitcoins. These are the people you want as your neighbors in the Bitcoin citadels. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, look, I've really enjoyed chatting with you, Trace. So that's, that's what I think is, is kind of going on. He like, wow. You know, he's wow. instrumental to like where, how it got to here. Like he had a, you know, he was on a mission with that. Um, and, you know, he was already planning on 
dipping out. Um, and I think that just like, because of these idiots on the internet, uh, you know, just berating him, like literally like, let's look up, uh, let's go to Twitter and let's search Trace Mayer. Oh, did he appear back again? Or, oh no, this is an old video. <laughs> So this person, some, you know, whoever this person, probably doesn't even have a full Bitcoin, says, we replaced Trace Mayer with Preston Prish, and I'm here for it. Like, you know, people, some people miss him. Um, let's see, what, what other people talking shit about Trace Mayer? Yeah, so Trace Mayer was a huge letdown. So this person, starving stat sucker. So this person is broke. All these people, not a single Bitcoin. They're like, Trace was a huge letdown for me. You know, all, all this stuff. You know, people asking this woman, she, she's the one that wrote the, the Bitcoin laws with Trace. Asking her, I bet she knows. But like, you know, people just... Um, you know, really turned on this guy and like for, for really no reason, you know, for talking about something that he was already talking about. So I don't know that like, I, I, I still like what, what's good about Trace Mayer's content is that it's always evergreen. Like you can go back to his oldest of old videos, even before Bitcoin existed and it's fully relevant. So then, you know, even though like kind of a vocal minority of people have like ostracized him, I think that like, you know, probably in the next 10 years or so, he's going to emerge in a really big way. And if Trace Mayer was to form a nation, like if, if Trace Mayer suddenly had more Bitcoin than the United States government or any other government and like new societies were forming, I, I would be allegiant to his nation. Like I would go and join that nation. Um, so I, I hope that, you know, he, he rests up and kind of, you know, enjoys himself. Um, and then when, you know, there's big power shift and the maps of the world are, are being rewritten, um, I, I, I want to be part of his nation. So, you know, and these people shit talking him on the internet, like they probably won't even have any more Bitcoin left at that time. And so that's probably what's going to happen. Brian, Trace Nation. <laughs> Trace Nation. <laughs>